This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Performance Anxiety. Our guest this week is Zachary Vex of ZVEX Effects. This show isn't about how a fuzz pedal differs from a distortion pedal. It's about the road to creating something really unique and then trying to market and sell it. There's a lot here for tech geeks, but there's also a lot here for people who like stories about being successful with your creativity and turning a passion into a business without losing the fun part of it all. It's also about Tesla coils and burritos. Follow ZVEX Effects at ZVEX Effects on Instagram. Go to ZVEX.com to hear some wild demos. And now let's get started with Zachary Vex. Hi, my name is Zachary Vex of ZVEX Effects. And you are listening to uh, Performance Anxiety, my personal performance anxiety. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm running a Kickstarter sometime in the near future after recording the show. It might still be running now by the time you hear it, although it is a little later than now. I mean, what your now is is different from my now now. Uh, enjoy yourself, and uh, I hope you find part of it uh, entertaining. Yeah, that would be the right word, entertaining. Well, if you don't mind if I'm, you know, making some food while I'm talking to you. I don't mind at all. <laughs> I don't I've, I've had, I had Jerry Gaskell take a piss while I was doing this, so no problem. Uh, yeah, that's, I'll try not to do that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> luckily, okay. luckily I can make, uh, luckily I can make food that's relatively quiet. I think I can make a bean and cheese burrito. I'll no, have to oh, make it from scratch. There you go. No, no problem. Like I said, this is a, a really casual conversation, so I don't mind if... Real life a casual conversation about about hunkering down in America. Pretty well, yeah. We we can do that. We can do that for sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just it's uh, the whole premise of the show is basically just uh, the the listeners are just like a fly on the wall while I'm trying to learn more about what you do. So it's just okay. pretty. It's not. It's not like I'm going to be. I don't want to be peppering you with questions. I'd, I'd rather it was more conversational. Okay. So, okay. So, uh, and the oh, the only thing that I ever ask is, is uh, at the end, I like to do this at the end, is uh, like you, you've done on, I'm sure, you know, all your other interviews, 
is uh, just a little introduction of yourself. You mentioned your name, the, the company name, and then the name of the show, which is Performance Anxiety. Um, I like to do it at the end because by that time, it's you know, we, we're a little more in the groove, you know, conversationally speaking. So it just tends to sound better. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's <laughs> fine. All right. Excellent. So you... Sounds like a plan. Oh, good, good. All right, so I, w- I wanted to know more about how you got into boutique effects pedals because it's a it's a world that I don't know anything about, but it fascinates me. Um, but I've, I've, I've told this story a zillion times. I, I can I can tell it again. I, <laughs> I feel like because I've because I've told it so many times that people can go back and look and then fact check against my other ones and see whether or not I'm modifying the story because you know stories evolve. Oh, of course. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but. Uh, when I was a, when I was a little kid, my my brothers used to go uh, over to my cousin's house. My aunt and uncle. My uncle had uh, an ES three thirty five and an SG. Oh, nice! It was a, and, uh, it was a Sunburst uh, three thirty five. I think it was yellow and black, but I'm not sure. And then I, and that's what I remember. But and then there was a SG, and I I, I kind of remember that being red. And uh, I I assume it had humbuggers. This was the '60s, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, uh, it could have, you know, could have been P90s. I'm not sure. I mean, I seem to remember the shiny humbuckers though. And um, they had uh, a little amp uh, called a Matco or something like that. It was a little tiny practice amp. Okay. Um, and then they had one effect. It was a uh, Jordan Boss tone. Okay. And Jordan Jordan Boss tones are notorious for falling out of the. They plug into the guitar directly. They have a you know like a plug sticking out of the back of them, and there's a little box that's maybe a. Two and a half inches tall and two oh. inches wide and okay. two inches thick. It takes a nine volt battery and then you it, you know it has a cord dangling off of it that's permanently attached that plugs into the amplifier. Oh, okay, and it's not very long. Oh, it's not very long. And then and then you plug the you plug the unit itself into the front of your guitar. So the SGO was fine. You couldn't really put it in the in the three thirty five because the jack faced down, so it would just fall right out of the jack. Cause it was oh, so geez. heavy. <laughs> If you put it into the SG, it would stay there because it was hanging, you know, swinging back and forth, hanging there. Okay. Without, you know, but if you lean forward for some reason, like if you drop your pick, yeah. this, is, this is what would happen. They'd be thrashing away on the guitar. They'd drop their pick. They'd bend over to grab the pick while they're sitting on a chair. And then, of course, the thing would fall out of the guitar. Oh, well, <clears throat> the top of these things was where the controls were. And they, they were kind of like little dials on a, on a transistor radio. All right. Those little kind of little wheels, but they were <clears throat> they're bakelite, so they're super brittle. Yes. And um, and they're in the shape of little tiny cups that actually encircled the entire pot, and they're very tiny, maybe about a half inch in diameter. So they were kind of like little caps that went over the top of the pot, and okay. they had little ridges on them so you could turn them. And so you you could use your thumb, you know, to turn it, or your finger to to turn it because it had these little ridges. But if it fell on the floor a few times, they'd shatter. And then, it, then there would just be a part of the cup left. Oh, jeez. You know? Yeah. And so that happened so many times that they broke so many pieces off of them that, that finally it was just down to a tiny little pie-shaped wedge of knob was still left, you know? <laughs> and in order, in order to turn up the fuzz so you could hear it, you had to get that thing, you know, turned all the way one way, but you couldn't really reach it if it was because it was a little slot that it fit into inside the box, or inside the pedal, so you couldn't get to it if it was all the way turned the wrong way. Oh, jeez. Well, it would hit the floor, and hitting the floor would cause it to turn the wrong way, and then you couldn't hear anything. You'd plug it back in, and it'd be dead. And I would have to retrieve, I had to 
tiny little fingers with tiny little fingernails. I was the smallest one. <laughs> and I'd have to sit there and pick away at it with my finger, trying to get the knobs turned back to get it working again <laughs> so that they could be played. Which I did, you know, diligently because I really loved the sound of that thing, you know. Yeah. I didn't want to listen to the playing guitar with a stupid practice amp that just sounded like you know, plinky, a bunch of plinky noises to me. So I knew the pedals were where it's at, you know, from a very early age. I was like, well, this guitar effects, this is the cool part, you know, right. obviously this is the guitar sounds really magical. Yeah. So I was always listening for that kind of stuff on the radio, you know. I didn't have a big record collection myself. My brothers did later in the 70s, but in the 60s, they only had a few records. Okay. And uh, like Sgt. Pepper's and... and uh, oh, geez, uh, yeah. Mystery tour, and so you definitely listen for effects. Then, I guess the only thing that really had an effect on anything that they had was they had uh, the Rolling Stones album with Satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. And that's the uh, that's the um, Maestro Fuzz Tone or Fuzz Box. Okay, yeah, yeah. Fuzz, I can't remember which one it is. Anyway, and that that version that was so early that probably was the battery the the D cell version that ran on the battery for oh. a flashlight battery. Jeez. <laughs> when you're when you're working with germanium transistors, they turn on at such a low voltage. You know the the uh, turn on voltage for a germanium diode is is about point point five or point point three. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it is. I'd have to, but it's point seven for silicon. So I think it's maybe point three for for a germanium. Oh, because it's really low. So when you have a threshold that low, you can use really low voltages for the power supply to uh, to turn to, to get the transistor to turn off and on. You know, but uh, the problem is the overall volume is limited, so you can never make the pedal terribly loud if you only have one, one and a half volts to work with. The, you know, okay, yeah. That makes sense. So that's why when they, they switched to 9-volt batteries because it gave a, a lot more headroom so you could make things a lot louder. Okay. I'll, I never realized that. Oh. I had no idea about that. <laughs> yeah. So I got into, uh, they changed those Maestro uh, fuzz tones pretty quickly. Uh, they only I've only seen one that had the D-cell in it. I, I know they must have changed wow. it like the first year. Oh, wow. So, um, and then there was a whole flurry of pedals that appeared during the 60s, but they were coming out of Japan. And, uh, of course, Hendrix made one of them really famous, uh, the uh, um, Shin-A vibe. Oh, oh Univibe. Yeah. Univibe, yeah, yeah. Sorry, no food, no blood sugar. Sorry. You <laughs> <laughs> got a half a brain working here. <laughs> no problem, no problem. You're, you're half a brain on guitar effects and, and effects history is... Much better than my full my brain at full capacity. So <laughs> okay, uh, well we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I got to high school and my mom had bought me a subscription to uh, Popular Electronics. I should say my my dad paid for it, so it's hard to say exactly what <laughs> for. My, my mom my mom ordered it. She was the one like we have to get you some, because you know, she, she knew I was starting to mess around with electronics already. Okay, and I was in orchestra. So I spent a lot oh. of time around the music practice room. Oh, what did you and, play? Uh, cello. I was first chair oh, by no. the time I was in high school. I was first chair. Wow. I was second chair until one of the girls quit. And then <laughs> first chair by default? Yeah, first chair by default because uh, the one girl who I was playing next to quit because she became a cheerleader and didn't have time for it. Ah. And then the uh, the other two girls who were ahead of me graduated. And then suddenly... <laughs> 
<laughs> That's one way to do it. Yeah, it was me and me and Debbie Shepelock. She was second chair. And I, suddenly, I had to learn how to read music. It was pretty bad. I, <laughs> I, I was just I was playing by ear, you know. Oh but wow! So I was by ear, so I was just listening to what everybody else was doing, watching them, and then copying what they were doing. And I was pretty good at that. Wow! You know, I, I figured that was the way to do it. I mean, it just, I didn't like music reading off a sheet. It just didn't make. I couldn't keep up, you know. Ah, okay. But, but then suddenly, I had to learn how to play off the music, which was frightening. But I. It took me about a month, I guess, and then I was kind of up to speed. But as soon as I was first chair, the director was like, okay, you're first chair now. And I was like, oh, great, this is fun. You know, I'm first chair. And then I look at the music and I was like, how does this go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is all of this? <laughs> how does this work? Yeah. So anyway, I, that was, that was, but I, the practice rooms were up there and they, we had a pop group. And in the pop group, we had an electric guitar player. Mm-hmm. And he was pretty good. Um, and he would practice in there. And uh, one day I heard him playing through a, obviously, Jordan Fostone. I mean, I, I knew, <laughs> or Jordan Bostone, I should say. It, I, I knew instantly. I heard it through the wall. And oh, I could hear man. the texture. Because it's such a distinctive fuzz. Okay. I, you know, I, I could probably pick it out today. I haven't heard one for a while, but I bet I could pick it out of a line of fuzzes. And just go, oh, that's the, that's the Jordan. Because <laughs> it has that distinctive tone. So I... I knocked on the door and I, and I looked in there and I was like, Hey, is that a Jordan boss tone? And he, and he goes, yeah. And then he steps away from the, he was standing in front of a counter and the, the box was sitting on the counter, not in the guitar, wasn't plugged in. It was sitting on the counter and it was a blue box and it was about an inch thick and it had a screw on metal cover and it had two sliders on it ah. instead of those silly little knobs. And I'm like, what is that? And he goes, oh, it kept breaking it all on the floor, and the knob kept breaking. So <laughs> I, <laughs> I had to build it into a new box. Oh, and the light bulb went off in my head very at that moment when I looked at it. I was like, this guy doesn't know anything about electronics. He's a guitar player, and he managed to, to make a box that does the fuzz. You know, and I was like, wow, I could do that. I bet I could just build a. So I built a fuzz using. I got. I convinced my dad to go to a Radio Shack with me. And Oh boy! He bought all for a, a, a distortion circuit that was in Popular Electronics, that magazine that I was getting. Yeah, and I couldn't get all the parts that I needed. I couldn't get the right ones. I could only get certain, you know, whatever they had at Radio Shack. Okay. So I had to keep making substitutions. So I'm walking around making substitutions, and I don't even know if the thing is going to work. <laughs> all like, this transistor going to sound like anything? Like, will it work at all? Oh my god! And uh, I uh, took all the parts home and I soldered it all up into a little plastic fishing tackle box my my brothers both worked at a plastics molding company and uh, they'd bring home rejects oh my. you know like the molds wouldn't fill up all the way you know yeah, they'd yeah. End up with a, a tackle box that had like a corner part way missing you know or right something. yeah yeah so we had boxes of that crap in our garage all kinds of them a lot of them were like little compartmentalized plastic boxes where you could put parts in which is how i kind of get started with the I still have some of those boxes sitting around. Oh, geez. My, <laughs> it's what I started with, and I still have, you know. Oh, wow. I never throw it away. That's so awesome. I, uh, I took one, and I used my dad's drill to drill out, you know, all of where all the jacks went and the switch. It was, it, was a, it was a toggle switch to turn it off and on. Okay. And uh, I think the same switch turned on the power as activated the circuit. I think it was permanently on. I don't oh. think you could, there was no bypass. <laughs> it was just like on, you know. I think a toggle switch just turned on the battery. <laughs> That's awesome. And, it, and 
it didn't have a circuit board, so all the parts were just kind of hanging there like a rat's nest. Oh. And uh, <laughs> it was all point to point, you know. Oh, but we had God. stuff in the basement, like in the crawl space in our house. We had these old electronics that my dad had bought, like his earliest, his very first radio that he bought, you know, kind of thing. And it stopped working, but he saved it because he never threw anything away, Scottish. Uh. And uh, <laughs> he... he he, he kept it, and I, I would open them up and look inside to see how they were put together. And it was all, you know, tropical fish capacitors and all this weird stuff. Old carbon uh, carbon resistors uh, and carbon composition resistors with great big ones with colored uh, painted lines that were, hand, you know, hand-painted on them. I mean, just kooky. Oh, my and gosh. they were all point-to-point. Everything hung in the air. And, and I, I looked at that, and I was like, wow, if they can get away with that, I can get away with that. So I, I built my circuit that way so that I was just careful to make sure that none of the wires touched, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would have been bad. I, I got it all hooked up, and I took it to school. where that guy. We didn't have an electric guitar at my house, so I had to go to school to meet up with that guy oh. and have him plug it in. And, you know, it didn't work. It didn't make any sound at all. Oh. And then I picked it up, and I shook it a little bit, and it, it kind of went... <laughs> and it started working for a second. <laughs> and he was flying through it. And he was like, man, that sounds really cool. And I was like, wow, it works. <laughs> and he gave me 10 bucks for it. He bought, he bought oh, it for 10 bucks. I was like, but it doesn't really work. And he goes, no, I'll just fuss with it. I can, I can make it work. He goes, I'll figure out what's wrong. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that was great. I made, t- I made t- I, you know, I got back a little less than what we spent to build it. But, <laughs> uh, you know. I, you know, I had 10 bucks spending money and, and my dad didn't know that I had the money and he didn't know that I sold the thing. And he, I never, I, in fact, the kind of family we were in, if I would have told my dad that I sold it, he would ask for the money. You know, <laughs> 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 he would have said, I paid for that. You know, yeah. but I think maybe it was my birthday, might have been birthday money too. I can't remember. I always had a little bit of birthday money. Around. Oh my God. That's, anyway. that's crazy. So did so you, then I, I set, set aside that I, did, I didn't make any more pedals. Oh, okay. Um, I got into high voltage for a while, and I, oh, because I, I, I met these two dudes who uh, who were building Tesla coils. They were twins, and uh, really, that was fun. Yeah, they were these crazy twins from down south somewhere. <laughs> they uh, came to our high school. They moved into the neighborhood. Came to our high school. And they just brought mayhem with them. I mean, seriously, they were making stuff that was just—it was explosive. It was so fun. They bring this stuff to school. And, then, and our electronics teacher would be like, what are you doing? You can't have that in here. You know? <laughs> Spark shooting everywhere and make, oh, making things glow and shocking people. And, you know, it, was, it was a blast. Oh my God. And I was like, excellent. So I started building bigger and bigger Tesla coils. And I, when I got to college um, during the summer after my first year, we convinced a professor uh, to let us use a lab. This old doddering guy who was in the 80s. He didn't understand what was going on. He was just trying to be helpful. I want to help out a couple of kids. I, right. My buddy, my buddy had the money to build it, and uh, Harry Stark. And he, um, <laughs> we built a two mil, a, a, a six million volt Tesla coil, and it was fun for a little while uh, until one fun. day uh, it, it blew up the breaker panel. <laughs> yeah, but it did. It started on fire because it was, you know, it ionized the air and and the cost of cause the air to become conductive. And of course, there was a lightning bolt in the corner. Oh my god! It, it, it came out of a utility box that was hanging hanging down from the 
on the wall. This is a this is a lab that was designed to to do experiments in, and so they had extra power everywhere. They had these heavy duty utility boxes that were plugged into the wall with these heavy cords. They're twist lock twist, twist lock plugs that face straight down in this raceway that ran about six feet off the floor. Oops. Okay. There was this race metal raceway that ran all the way around the room, and then there was every like four feet or maybe even closer, there was a a twist lock plug socket, I should say, that faced straight down. And then you could plug in these utility boxes. You twist the plug and you stuck it in there and it would hang. You'd lock in there and it would hang. Okay. And then you could put the box anywhere on the floor. And you could bring power, heavy-duty power, anywhere you wanted. Well, we had one in the corner not being used. And we ionized all the air in the corner of the room because that's where the probes were lying. We forgot that they were lying on the floor. And then oh we, we fired. We went to lunch. We came back. We turned it on and it ionized the corner of the room. And then it it caused a lightning bolt to shoot out of with the utility box and hit a chemical sink. It was about a foot long. Yeah. Um, it looked like it was an inch in diameter. It was really loud. Whoa. And then the whole building, it sounded like the whole building hummed. Like it just sounded like everything went. <laughs> and then all the lights went out everywhere in the hallway, in the room, like everywhere. And oh it turned out that we, it turned out we blew up all the computers and the secretaries were in the next room over working on, you know, oh. administrative stuff. And, we destroyed their computers, which at the time were really expensive. It would have been <laughs> 1981. Oh, wow. 19, no, 19, no, 1979. 1979. Oh, my yeah. God. So that was not, that was not good. No more building Tesla coils. No more Tesla coils. So that was the end of that. So then I kind of I started getting into uh, guitar amps because when I, 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 I dropped out of college, I was in electrical engineering, and then I got to a certain point where all they were doing was teaching me all this theoretical stuff, and I was like, what, what am I going to do with this? I want to learn how to do audio electronics, and they said, well, we don't have a program for that. Oh. I said, well, how am I going to learn how to do audio electronics? <laughs> and my professor actually shrugged and looked at me and he goes, work at a repair shop? So oh. I did. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I looked. I left college and I went to work for Duosonic. It was a, it was a uh, repair shop on the corner of Bloomington and Lake in Minneapolis. And um, Steve, I think the guy's name was Steve Daggett, if I remember right. And anyway, he he uh, he had like three guys working for him, and we repaired Fenders and Marshalls and SGs and I'm uh, SVTs. I mean, and and uh, and probably you know guitars too, but not very many. Mostly amps. Okay. And they gave me the crap job yeah. at the beginning. They had me working on um, repairing uh, warranty, these plastic cheap warranty phonographs for Sears. There was a Sears store up the street, and they you know, they hired these guys to do the warranty repairs. Right, yeah. And these things were hopeless. I mean, you couldn't, they, they couldn't be fixed. They were junk, you know. They just... It couldn't be so. My, I would open them up, and it would be a broken part, and then there would be, and they're like, uh, "Can we order these parts?" And and Gary would say, "No, they, they don't make them anymore, so you can't buy replacement parts." And he goes, "You just have to see which ones you can glue back together, and if you can't, just mark them off as unsalvageable, and then they'll just refund the money." <laughs> oh, jeez! <laughs> that was my job. I would be like, you know, twenty, thirty of those things a day, tearing into these stupid photographs, plastic photographs. But meanwhile, behind me and all around me were these guys working on these amplifiers that just smelled reeked of cigarette smoke yeah. because they all were in bars and the bars were completely filled with cigarette smoke at oh, the time. Yeah. So all the gear came in. It was just, you, you could see this dingy color, this weird 
tobacco color that would get on air. You know, everything would turn color. Nothing was clean. Oh, God. And these were old amps. And I was looking at them like, these are ancient. Like, how come people play through such old equipment? And Gary was like, that's what the cool stuff is, man. That's, you know, the old stuff is the cool stuff. Right, yeah. Like, wow, they play through antiques? And he's like, oh, stuff never dies. It's not an antique. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, (laughs) it looks like an antique to me. (laughs) (laughs) I I learned all about it, you know. I learned all about SVTs, and I learned all about how how high the voltages were in those amps. And, um, it was a huge education for me. I was only there for a couple months. Oh, okay. And then, uh, but I learned so much. And then after that, I I got a job um, at Control Data as a technician, working on ion implanters, which were used in the semiconductor industry. My Oh. My professor, my advisor at the University of Minnesota got me that job. He was he was working as an advisor to them as a consultant. And so he asked him to hire me. Oh, wow. That, that, they made a big mistake by hiring me. <laughs> 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 I mean, I, ion implanters have that. My ion implanter had a half a million volt power supply in it. Oh, so, my you know, God. For me, I was like, hey, I want, let's, see, let's make that thing spark. I want to see what it looks like. You know, that, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, it's a playground my, my for buddy, you. <laughs> my buddy Paul kept me from getting electrocuted one time. Oh, Couldn't figure out why this thing didn't work, so we bypassed all the interlocks so we could look inside there while it was running. Oh. And I suddenly saw that we'd left a wrench in it. And I was like, hey, we left a wrench in there. And I started reaching for it. And he goes, oh, don't do that. He pulled on my smock and pulled me out of the inside of the machine. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be here today if Paul hadn't. <laughs> oh. that, was, that was I was really comfortable around high, high voltage. I thought it was completely fascinating. Oh, my gosh. And, I met a girl while I was there. Her name was Bambi. And we ended up moving in together. Okay. And she had this she had this friend who played guitar really well. Um, Japanese dude, I can't remember his name, but he had the first Mesa Boogie Mark II B that I'd ever seen. Oh, wow, yeah. And it had a graphic equalizer and everything. I mean, it had all the accessories and other, you know. Oh, and cool. Besides the... There's two kind of weird things about Mesa Boogies from that era. One was every single Mesa Boogie from that era had a little dent in the back from where they hit it with a hammer. And they were proud of this. They'd be like, we hammer test these amps, you know, before we ship them so oh. that you know that they're... <laughs> wow, I didn't <laughs> know that. <laughs> yeah, they'd whack them with a hammer and there'd be a little dent in the chassis <laughs> right in the back. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, that's goofy. Yeah. <laughs> what if they broke something and they didn't know, you yeah. know, and it just shows up later? Because <laughs> I've repaired a bunch of this stuff now and I know, you know, you don't want stuff to be broken. And anyway, <laughs> you know, loosen up an insulator and it shorts out later. I don't know. So <laughs> anything could happen. So I... I uh, I'm, I'm looking at the, the other thing about Mesa Boogie during that time was they included the schematics when you bought it so oh. that you could get it repaired anywhere. Wow. Because they were so unusual that they didn't, they were, the schematics were not available in any of the schematic books yet because, uh. you know, Fender had been around for so many years that they, they had books and books of all their schematics available for repair shops because okay. they had to keep these things going. You have to keep your amps going because it's the most expensive thing the musician owns. I mean, he can't afford to buy another one. He's got to get it fixed, and he's got to have it fixed right now so he can go do the gig. You know? uh, yeah, like that. that makes sense. Guy arrives in town. His amp stops working. You know, he's got to he's got to play in two hours. He races down to the repair shop. You know, they yeah. got to have the schematic there. Yeah, so that makes sense. Boogie included the schematics. Oh wow! And uh, it took me a while. It took me at least a month of convincing this dude. To let me borrow his schematics so I could copy them, take them to a copy place, copy them. <laughs> you know, nowadays you could just take your phone and snap pictures of all the pages, right? Oh, but yeah. 
then I had to go find a copier, you know. Oh, man, yeah. Oh, he went wow. getting in the car and taking So physically taking those schematics out of his house made him so nervous. He was just freaking out. Oh, I'm like, man. I promise you, I won't lose them. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so you lose those schematics, I might not be able to make my app work again. Oh, like, my there was no internet to look up the schematics on, you know. Yeah, exactly. So I copied all the schematics, and I brought them back to him. And then I, I had all the schematics laminated. Oh, so that they couldn't get wrecked because I was they were so idea. precious to me because that that amp sounded so cool. And then, in Bambi's apartment where I was living with her, I started modifying my uh, Fender basement. I had a blonde basement. It's one of those two twelve bottoms. Oh, them. yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I don't remember what year it was. Early sixties, late fifties, early sixties, I guess. Okay, and um, it uh, it sounded fantastic. And, and, you know, in order to maintain its value, I could have left it alone. But as a learning experience, I, I took it apart. And I used parts that I stole from Control Data, <laughs> these extremely high-quality glass resistors. I've never seen anyone. One, I still have a few left. I've never seen them anywhere else. They were some kind of military thing, no spec. Oh, wow. And um, and these really nice capacitors and everything I had, I put in really carefully. And I, I did not do a haywire. I very, very carefully laid out everything. When you desolder the components off the board in a fender amp from that era, it's an eyelet board. It consists of a whole bunch of little brass or copper rings, basically, okay. that, are, that you fill up with solder. And then they're, they're stuck into a piece of card stock that's really thick and, and kind of covered with wax, black. Oh, wax. Okay, yeah, yeah. So these eyelet boards, if you disconnect every single, com- every single part that doesn't help make, you know, if you're trying to convert an amp into something else, a different type of amp, like which is what I wanted to do. I wanted to make a Mesa Boogie out of this fender. Right. I, I took out all the parts. I reused as many parts as I could, rearranged them, and used parts that I took from Control Data. And I slowly, in Bambi's bedroom, soldered up, just sitting on the floor. I remember sitting next to the bed. And she'd be like, are you going to come to bed? And I'm like, I've just got a few more things to solder. <laughs> I had this great soldering iron. <laughs> I discovered this soldering iron made by Weller that had a temperature-controlled tip, and it had a little magnet in it. And the, when it heated up to a certain temperature, the magnet would release and cause the tip to you know, stay. It would never get too hot. It would oh, just wow. get to the right temperature and then stop. And then as soon as it got cool again, the magnet would drop back into place, go click. You could, and so it would always be going click, and then unclick, and then click, and then unclick. And oh, wow. Would, you know, every few seconds. I remember that sound as I was working away there. <laughs> it, took me, it took me about a week to convert that amp. And the first time I plugged it in and turned it on, it actually worked and sounded magnificent. I, I was completely blown away. I was like, no, oh. I did it. Like, it, it, it did it. You know, I kept the power section the same. The output section, I just left it as basement. And then I made the preamp all Mesa Boogie. Okay. So then I went and showed it off to my buddies who were in bands, because at that point I was friends with a guy from high school who had joined a band called Caribou, and they had they were touring. Okay. You know, small tours, but you yeah. know, they were playing gigs every weekend, and yeah, that's how he was making his money. And uh, I showed it off to the guitar player in that band, and he ordered one immediately. Oh, I said, wow. well, you're going to have to, you're going to have to buy a Fender amp for me to convert. I'll do the conversion. You only have to pay me for the conversion. I think I charged him a hundred bucks to convert it. Oh my gosh! I converted about I don't know, I don't know how many I converted, ten or twenty. I did a bunch over the years. Wow. You know, at the beginning, during the early '80s, and then. Um, in 84, I heard Prince on the radio. Could have been 83, but I think it was 84. I heard Prince on the radio. Baby and I had just broken up. I was living behind the Christian Science Reading Room 
uh, on Irving and Lake in Minneapolis, and I moved Kitty Corner into this house. And, and it was a converted, it was a big old stucco house that had been converted into separate apartments. Okay. And uh, I was on the second floor. I had a little two bedroom apartment. Um, it was 250 bucks a month. And I, uh, I was making pretty good money working for uh, Eaton Corporation at that point. I was a service engineer, and I had, they had a company car. It was a nice job. Oh, wow. I think I was making 35 grand. Oh, and it was, geez. And I had a company car. So it was, or maybe, maybe that was with the car. So it, the, uh, it was a great job, and then I got laid off. But I got laid off because, <laughs> because of Prince. I got, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I, w- I, was, I, would, I heard him on the radio. And the first time, it was Little Red Corvette. That was when I was working at Control Data. And then after a couple of years passed, he kept coming up with, you know, more and more stuff. Yeah. And and had more and more hits on the radio. And I was like, God, this guy's from Minneapolis. And he's just a, he said, you know, he's a Minneapolis guy. Right. A Minnesota guy, like me. And and he's got all this, he's got this fantastic gear. And he records himself and he plays every instrument. He does everything himself. I could do that. So I started going to stores where they had, uh, where they had drum machines and recording equipment and, and I, I got a, first I got a four track TAC reel to reel. Oh boy. Yeah. And then uh, I mixed it. I mixed a cassette and I got a synthesizer and I got a drum machine and you now microphone and a little mixing board, but nothing was ever enough. I just had to keep expanding and expanding <laughs> until finally I had this, uh, <laughs> finally I had a, uh, um, a Kai MG twelve twelve, which was a, a little, it took a, what looked kind of like a beta cassette, like a beta cartridge for a, you know, the comp- oh, yeah. competitor for VHS. Yeah, yeah. They were actually better quality, but they didn't survive. Yeah, thanks, thanks porn industry. Huh? Thanks, porn industry. Yeah. <laughs> so I, <laughs> so I, I, I uh, recorded on that thing, and then it, it had horrible tracking. They, they were all defective. They, that, was, that whole device crashed and burned. They had to discontinue it. They went to a 1214... Um, version of which I think had two extra edge tracks or something, but they, they never worked right. You couldn't get them to track. They oh, would, geez. The tape would drift around up and down on the head, and then the high end would wash. You'd hear the high end washing in and out. It was awful. Oh, but That's I was terrible. doing recordings on that stuff, and then I would take, I'd take the recordings that I was doing, and I would go over to uh, this radio station that, that at night, at mid after midnight, there was a girl named Alice who was a DJ there. And you could call in requests, and, and I called in and said, "Hey, if I bring over a song that I recorded on cassette, can you play it on the air so I can hear what it sounds like in my car?" <laughs> and she was like, "Sure," because <laughs> I didn't have a tape player in my car. Oh, that's awesome! I, I, had, <laughs> I, I went there and and brought the cassette there, and so after that, I started bringing every time I had a new song, I'd, I'd bring it over there, and she'd play it on the air. You, when you walked into it was KFAI Fresh Air Radio. When you walked into it, it was in a church, really low budget radio station. Oh, wow! flea-powered radio station. You, could, you know, hardly pick it up. You could only, it was only in town, you know. Oh, boy. So you'd, you'd walk up these stairs, and you get to the top landing and the stairs, and there was a boombox. And the boombox showed, it was tuned to KFAI. And that was the proof that they were on the air. Oh, That's how geez. small this radio station was. They had a boombox in the hallway to show that they were on the air because she had no other way of knowing it. She would walk out the hall once in a while and glance at it and see that the little red light was on, indicating that the signal was tuned in. Oh and it was, the music was coming out of the speakers. And she was like, okay, we're on the air. Good. <laughs> <laughs> it was just completely silly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember I walked in and I had a cigarette. She goes, you can't smoke in here. <laughs> it was a big deal about not having cigarettes around recording equipment or around consoles. You were, it was a huge 
deal back then. Uh, Nobody wanted to have any of their gear you get smoke in it because they thought that the you know smoke would mess it up. Okay, okay. And so I remember that was very, very strict. So I started learning things about, you know, here, don't smoke around your gear, you know, don't yeah. smoke around tape machines, especially because you, the, the, you know, ash gets in there and screws up the heads. Okay. I don't know if it's true, but that's what they told us. <laughs> and, uh, it worked, you remember it. So I, so I really got into recording stuff for myself. And then I heard this band play at a bar, bar in my neighborhood called Uptown. And um, it was a band called The Blue Up. And uh, ultimately... The drummer for drummer, yeah, Bobby Z, the drummer for um, for uh, Prince, managed that band. It was an all-girl band. When I met them, they were like nine; they were all nineteen years old, and they were all five feet two. <laughs> I don't know how they found each other. Like, <laughs> it was a trio, power trio, you know, oh, and they wow. played psychedelic stuff that sounded like a mixture of. Um, well, let's see. The first album I recorded for him was called uh, SF Sorrow or something. No, uh, Sergeant Sorrow? Yeah, Sergeant Sorrow. I think they took two type, two different L, uh, LPs that they loved, and they stole one word from each one. <laughs> so there must be, some band must have had a, an album called SF Sorrow. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm remembering this one. I don't anyway, know, but it sounds they, good. They did this weird, <laughs> weird psychedelic stuff. So I heard them play, and I saw them, and I was just like, this is too cute. They're all so small. And then it's an all-girl band, and it's a trio, and they're all exactly the same size. And... <laughs> Music is completely intriguing. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make—I didn't understand where it came from, but I was like, I've never heard anything like this before. And oh. I was like, can I, can, can I record you? <laughs> and and the girl was just like backing up. You know, the lead singer was just like backing up, like get away, yeah. you weirdo. <laughs> you know? and I was like, I've got this. I've got a little recording studio I've set up in my apartment, and I've never recorded a band before, but I'd love to record your band. And uh, it took me a while to convince Rachel. I actually I ran into her at a bus stop. Um, outside of McDonald's in Uptown later and kept trying to convince her. I was like, you know, I was not kidding about recording. I'll record you for free. How would you like to have a, a, you know, a single that was recorded for free? Yeah. Because, you know, I'm charging. So I, I recorded her band in my apartment. My landlord contacted me, told me if I ever did that again, <laughs> he was going to kick me out of the building. Because <laughs> 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 you had drums, drums in your apartment <laughs> after 10? <laughs> that was what I was like. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So then I decided to rent a little space. I still had that job, so I was making okay money. And it, a, a huge number of very strange circumstances co combined, it just by pure luck. Okay. It happened to be in a neighborhood right around the corner from where Babes in Toyland and, and Soul Asylum and Husker Du yeah. and uh, Replacements all hung out and recorded. And there was a record label there called Twin Tone. Okay. And uh, um, I didn't know. I mean, I was, I was less than a block and a half away. I, I was about, let's see, one, I was three quarters of a block away from them. Oh, wow. Around the corner. I was, I was half a block up and then across the street and over by the alley. So it was, it was amazing. And I, I discovered it completely by accident. I was there setting up my recording studio for the first year. And I used to walk over to this uh record shop called Garage Door and shop for records. Okay. And one day I was in there and I said, yeah, hey, I've got a recording studio. And I handed my card to somebody and the guy, and the guy looked at me and he smiles. And he's a, he's a, he just recently died. He's a he's super famous guy who was friends with all of the cool musicians in Minneapolis. And I didn't know this. I just thought, you know, his records were on. Yeah. And, uh, Terry, any, any, uh, <laughs> he looked at my card and he looks across the street and he, and he points over to across the street and he goes, you know what that is? 
And I said, what is it? And he goes, it's Creation Studios. It's the biggest studio in Minneapolis. You, you, you're you in a studio area. <laughs> Did you know you started a studio in a studio area? And I was like, no, I didn't know that. So there was a lot of people recording, you know, nearby. Oh, Amphetamine Reptile Records was right up the street from me, too. So oh, I just wow. happened to luckily find a spot, you know? Yeah. And uh, I went in there. It turned out that the space that I was renting had been formally rented by the Minnesota Songwriters Association, which was now defunct. Oh, wow. They'd gone, I guess they'd gone bankrupt, and they couldn't even afford to move their piano. Oh, geez. So the guy who ran that kept coming into the shop while I was sitting and working in there, getting my studio set up, doing building and whatever, and he uh, he kept coming in and saying, hey, um, I, you know, do you mind if I leave the piano here until we can move it? And I was like, yeah, it's no problem. And after, after the first month or two, he kept stopping by, and finally he was saying, "Okay, I can't can't raise the money to move the piano. Can you can you buy the piano from me? I'm really broke. I'm really broke." Oh, jeez! I'm, like, I'm like, I don't think I need an upright grand piano. It's so big. It, I, the space was really small, you know. Wow. And, and I said, I just don't think I need one. And he goes, "Oh, come on, man, come on." And he's like, "I'll take whatever you got in your pocket. Whatever you got in your pocket." Oh my I'm like, gosh! I I had twenty bucks. I handed him 20 bucks. I got myself a piano. Jeez. Then I started playing on the piano and I noticed that there was something really funky about it, that it sounded really weird. Like it was very, very mid-rangey and I never really had any bass. And as it turned out, the bass bridge had separated from the, whatever the, whatever the tone, I don't know, tone board or something, I don't know what it's called. But it separated, the glue had come loose and so it was, it didn't have any depth to the low end at all. It was all mid-rangey all the way down. Oh, wow. Very, very distinctive, which actually made it sound really interesting when you mic'd it up because it was, you know. So that, that piano ended up on a whole bunch of recordings, including Closing Time by Semisonic. Really? And, um, and that was completely by accident that it ended up on theirs because they rented a piano for that session, but they hated it. They, they rented a, a good Yamaha Baby Grand. But they didn't like the tone when they recorded it. It just didn't have any character. Oh, man. But they liked my piano, which was not tuned, was <laughs> broken, <laughs> and it was it was stored in the airlock in between the control room and the recording room. So you had to squeeze past it oh, in order to go into the control, you know, back and forth. It was the only place that my buddy John could put it. When I got out of the studio business, I gave it away to my buddy, buddy John. Anyway, oh, so I, I recorded in this recording studio that I built. I did, I don't know. 2000 projects over a course of four wow. years, maybe five, five years. Oh we were busy. We were, we were nine ninety nine an hour when we opened nine dollars oh and ninety nine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so with engineer. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll tell you a real quick coincidence. Um, I actually had, uh, Dan from semi-sonic. I had his brother, uh, on the show recently, Matt. So that's, Excellent. A, that's a strange coincidence there. I didn't realize we had. Mm-hmm. Okay, so back to your story. Well, I first met those guys, those two brothers, when they were in Trip uh, Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we talked a lot about Trip Shakespeare. Sorry, chew it down a little burrito there. No problem. Man, take your time. <laughs> That's the magic <laughs> of editing. You know that. The story is kind of a time, it's sort of a, you know, a sensible timeline, kind of. It's kind of going forward in time, right? Yeah. I may have to skip around a little bit, but it's not too terrible. No. So I was in 85. Yeah, I started recording in my apartment in November of 84, and I shut down the studio, I believe, in January of 91. Okay. 
And I worked as an independent recording engineer and producer until 95 at other studios. Okay. All in the Minneapolis area still? Yeah. Okay. What happened was um, equipment got so cheap. There was so much new equipment being introduced. And then ADAT hit. Remember ADAT? Yes. Yes, it Those eight-track synchronized? Yes. Well, each band would buy one ADAT machine. They were like two grand each. And then any band that wanted to record, they'd strap their ADATs together. They'd all get the ADATs together, and they'd make a 24-track machine out of it. <laughs> and they'd record in somebody's basement, you know, and they'd all pool their microphones and pool all their, you know, cords and stands. So they formed their own recording studios and started doing And it just became sort of like a theme in Minneapolis where people were recording in houses using this community gear, you know. Oh, wow. And they, it, it, I couldn't compete with that because it was basically free. Yeah. They could take their time, you know. So my business started to dwindle, and I couldn't couldn't make it anymore, so that's why I had to shut down. But I still was able to work because there were other studios that had 24-track analog machines. So after that, what got you back into making uh, guitar effects pedals? Tinnitus. Oh. Or tinnitus. Yeah, I, um, I wish I had to pronounce that. I got some relocation money. In 1994, August, I think, and um, they told, they gave me $10,000 check up front, which I used to pay off a bunch of bills I had because I, I just was so poor. It was insane. <laughs> oh, and then I lived on the, what was left from that until like I got another check. Like I was getting checks every couple of months that, were, that would help me cover my rent and because they relocated me out of this building because they were building a, a new Federal Reserve Bank down by the river. Ah, okay. So they stuck me in this cheap apartment, and uh, I sat in there and, and tried to let my ears heal because I had developed tinnitus so bad in my right ear, it would... I was recording hardcore bands at that point, and my right ear would fire off and start ringing if I heard a kick drum in, in real life, you know? Ooh. And invariably, someone would hit a drum while I was in the recording room before I could get back in the control room. <sighs> Someone would hit a drum, you know, they'd forget that I can't, I'd be like, you guys can't hit anything till I get, let me close the door. You know, yeah. please. But invariably something would happen and then they would kick or, or hit a snare or something. And, and then my ear would just go, Bee! and I was done for the day. I mean, literally I couldn't hear anything at that point. Wow. My right ear was gone. You know? Oh, geez. And after, after a few sessions like that, I was like, oh, I've got to, this has got to heal up. I can't do this anymore. It's killing me, you know? Yeah. So, so I, um, Went and I just hunkered down in this apartment, and um, and was living off this money that I got, and just living, you know, beating, <laughs> not, not spending any money, not going to the bar, not buying any pot, nothing. I just stopped, <laughs> everything. I just stopped, you know, stopped spending any money. I thought maybe I could clear it up. It was so on my ear back, so bad because I knew I needed it to make a living. You yeah, know? yeah. And uh, I had heard that uh, Soul Asylum, Dave Perner had terrible problems with tinnitus. And so he had plastic around the drummer, you know, mm-hmm. they had a plastic shield around the drummer. And, uh, okay. that was one of the solutions they used, but he, in order for him to fall asleep, he had to turn the TV between stations and listen to it going, because otherwise he couldn't sleep because the screaming was so loud oh, after a gig. Geez. Same thing happened to Pete Townsend. I've heard I didn't that. want that to happen to me. I didn't want that to happen to me. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Jeez. And my dad had hearing problems too. And I was like, oh crap, you know, am I going to lose my hearing? I'm, I was only in my thirties, you know? Oh God. So I, I, uh, 
sat perfectly still and just waited in silence, you know, every day, cleaned up all, you know, being a good boy. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one day I went into a equipment store, music equipment store. I was always looking, looking for a really good bargain. And I found an uh, Apollo Fuzzwa made by Chenet, same company that made the Univibe. Right, okay. Um, 60s device. It was all worn out. The treadle didn't work anymore. But the wah wah, I didn't, wasn't interested in. What I could hear when I turned on the fuzz just blew my mind. I was like, this fuzz is like the absolute craziest fuzz I've ever heard in my life. It okay. just sounded like it was race car engine. Oh, like, wow. And it would just make these grumbly sounds. It was intermodulation distortion, but I didn't even know what it was called back then. And um, I bought it for 25 bucks, took it home, opened it up, and there was a schematic inside. Oh, wow. Once again, Jeez. I had a sound that I really loved, and I had the schematic right in front of me. Oh my God. Same thing that happened with that PC Boogie Mark II. Yeah, you know, yeah. Having access to the schematic was always what gave me that sense of power that, like, I can do this. I can make my own, you know? Wow. So I took the schematic, and I built my own Apollo Fuzzwa with the octave. It's an octave fuzz. And I called it the octane, but what I did was I changed two things. I, I gave it a much louder output by putting a boost circuit at the output of it. And I changed this tone control switch into a tone control knob that let you sweep back and forth between the carved out mid-range and the very aggressive mid-range tones that the were with the choices in that switch. Oh, cool. So you could choose exactly how much, you know, voice it had, how, right. much, how much bark, how much bark it had. So that thing I totally loved. And I was I was so proud of the way it sounded that I I painted up a box and I got Letraset letters, which are these rub off letters that you could get back then for doing graphic artwork. Oh, okay, you'd, yeah, yeah. There were transfer letters. You'd put the sheet down. It was kind of a looked like wax paper kind of. It was covered with letters. Yeah, black. yeah. And you you rub the them, right? You rub them from the front, and they'd stick on whatever surface you put them on. Yeah, I remember that. So I put those down on the top of the pedal after I painted it. I got these testers enamels, and I went to the I went to the hobby shop and I was like, how do I get candy apple red? You know, and, and the guy told me what I had to do was paint down a, either a silver or gold first. Yep. Let that dry and then put uh, the candy clear over the top of it with the clear candy clear red over the top of it. So it has a reflective surface behind it in order to make it glow like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I looked at it when I was done spraying and I was like, God, this is great. It's, it's actually glowing. It looks like a candy apple car. I had, I had some when I was kids, you know. Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, I used to have some little race cars that were that candy apple. Yeah, me too. And then I, I put the letter set on there, and I didn't I didn't like the way that the letters turned out for the octane. So I took a razor blade, and I carefully cut down through the paint so I got down to the metal, the bare metal underneath. So the letters were cut out as bare metal. Oh, wow. And I spent all this time working on it. It's not, these, are, these are not really important details, except for the fact that I was so proud of what I had done. I took it to a store. Now, at first, I showed it to all my friends, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I walked into the store, this fantastic, one of the best stores in America. It's called Willie's American Guitars. It's in St. Paul. Okay. And uh, I walked in there, and I was like, Nate is the owner. Everybody calls him Willie. <laughs> and I said, hey, Nate, I made this. And he was trying to do a sale. You know, he was trying to sell a guitar, and I interrupted him. And he kind of looked at me and rolled his eyes. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you interrupting me. <laughs> and he looks over, and he kind of squints, and he looks at it, and he goes, oh, nice. I'll take three. And he goes back to <laughs> And I'm like, what? <laughs> what just happened? <laughs> That's incredible. I wasn't expecting that, you know? Yeah. I was like, really? You want me to make three of them for you? He goes, yeah. And I said, you haven't even heard it. He goes, you're a recording engineer. I'm sure it sounds fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so I, I went home and I built three. 
And I brought them over to him. And I said, you know, we didn't discuss how much you wanted to pay for them. And he goes, it's not what I want to pay for them. It's what you want to charge me. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I'm just going to mark it up. Whatever you, whatever you charge me, I'm just going to mark it up. And I'll put it right at the counter. And somebody will come along and buy it. And, you know, it's only three, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I said, what's the most expensive pedal, new pedal that you sell here? And he put his finger over the top of a, of a uh, Mike Fuller uh, full-tone uh, Oh, I don't know what's his class. It's, a, it's a, his original, his original distortion booster thing. Okay. And um, and he said that's the most expensive one. And he told me the price. I don't remember what it was. And so I made mine twenty bucks more. <laughs> <laughs> I said it was going to be the most expensive pedal in the case. That's you know, awesome. I didn't care. I didn't care what happened at this point. I didn't expect to be in business. I thought I was just going to make three pedals and that would be it. It would be like the $10 pedal that I sold to the guy in high school. Right, yeah. It'd be a one, one shot deal and then years would go by and I'd be doing something else, you know? Right. <laughs> he sold a lot of them right away. Wow. And uh, he ordered more. So I made 16 of those for him between June and I guess October, November. Oh, wow. And I walked in and I had a, another one. I was always replenishing him because, you know, I thought he, I sold every. Every month I'd walk in. My money was almost out at this point. I got my last check for four grand from the relocation program. Yeah. And I, I had burned through that in a few months. I didn't know what I was going to do. My my ear was all healed up. Oh, that's good. It hadn't rung for like six months. I was thinking I'd go back to recording. And I walk into a shop with an art and I'm like, hey, you need one more of these? And he goes, nope. I've sold the last octane I'm going to be able to sell in this town. <laughs> I'm like, well, what do I do now? <laughs> he, yeah. goes, he goes, well, I'll only introduce you to a couple of the stores when I have some, a chance. You know, when, when I got guys in town, so these guys come and visit me. They want to look over my shop. We, we trade stuff back and forth, stuff that doesn't sell very well here. They can get back to, you know, like Chicago or whatever and sell it there. Yeah. He goes, so the next time Greg comes into town, I'll introduce you. He goes, but uh, until then, uh, just designed me a new pedal. Then he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> and I had yeah. this, like, my stomach was kind of turned flip flops because I was like, nah, I don't, I'm, I'm a, you know, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I don't know. I don't, I'm afraid to go back to recording because I don't want to make my ear ring again. And then yeah. I, I, I can't sell any more of these octaves. <laughs> I'm running out of money. <laughs> I'm screwing, you know, and I yeah. felt like an old man at that point. Screwing <laughs> 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 with a capital N. Yeah. So I, <laughs> So I uh, went home. I stayed up all night and I designed the fuzz factory. Wow! I was trying to make, I was trying to make a regular conventional fuzz, like a fuzz face fuzz. Mm-hmm. And I had bought these transistors a while ago at a place called Axeman Surplus, and they were really cute. They were the shape of a tiny little spam can, kind of flat on both sides, and okay, rounded. And uh, I had never tried to listen to them before. But I stuck them into a circuit, and I couldn't figure out which lead was the emitter, which one was a collector. Okay. There was no thing I couldn't look, you know, there was no internet to look it up on, so right. I couldn't figure it out. So I just tried them every which way in the circuit, no matter what I hooked them up. If I hooked them up backwards, they sounded almost the same as when I hooked them up forwards. They oh. were just dull and crummy and they sounded horrible. So I took the booster circuit that I used at the output of the octane and I put it at the front end of this to try to jack up the fuzz to make it fuzz out more. But, you know, I figured if you put a bigger signal in, it'll come out more fuzzy. Okay. Well, it did. And then it went crazy. Okay. And it started making all kinds of weird squealing noises. <laughs> and I, I kept adding pots to it, add, you know, controls to it, to try to tame down the squealing. Oh. And I was able to tame down the squealing, but 
at the but it, what happened was I couldn't pick my favorite sound. I couldn't figure pick, pick the favorite setting. I was you know I was going to replace those pots with permanent resistors so that it would just be stuck in a good sound. You know. Okay. And I kept twisting the knobs back and forth and listening to all the different sounds you could get out of this thing, and I couldn't pick one. And then I was like, screw it. I'll just make a five knob fuzz. <laughs> ideas it was going to be in the shape of a foot and each of the knobs was going to be a toe and the big toe was going to be the volume control and then you know and then i was going to stick out like little toes at the end of this foot shaped pedal and then i started looking into casting i called around everybody i knew that might be able to do casting and i found this casting company in minneapolis and they wanted to charge me a fortune to cast these feet you know (laughs) and it was going to be called the flat foot you know yeah you know i have it's all in my lab notebooks (laughs) so i I was like, nah, screw that, you know. And then one day, I was thinking, well, how can I make it, you know, it's like a new version of the fuzz face. And then I, uh, fuzz, F-A-C, you know, fuzz yeah. face, F-A-C, almost E, you know. And it suddenly hit me, I was like, fuzz factory. Oh, that's funny, because it's a factory of fuzz. You can make all these different sounds with it. So it kind of tells you what you're going to do when you get it, you know. Yeah. It's a way of inventing your own sound. That's amazing. That. That's great. That's, so I that brought was... it over to Nate. I painted it green. So I, it was emerald green, candy candy emerald green, it's called. It was a tester's color. Okay. And that one, I, I started using copper as the base coat. I used silver so I could make it, you know, very bright because the green was kind of dark. It didn't have, it just didn't have that glow like the yeah. red. Yeah, yeah. And then I, I, I used paint pens to, to draw on the, uh, to draw on all the uh, labels on that one. Oh, okay. And I would change colors. I did kind of like a rainbow colored different different colored uh, paint pens on different spots. You know? Oh, wow. And I made one of those, and I brought it to Nate, and I was like, hey, I made you a new pedal. And he looked at it, and he just goes, man, that's a lot of knobs. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> well, I said, I couldn't make up my mind, Nate. Yeah. <laughs> I had to leave them, leave them all in there so you could adjust it. So it's kind of like an engine. He turns the user into an engineer, and he goes, yeah, whatever, whatever. I'll, 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 take, I'll take two of them. You know? <laughs> so those, those would not sell. They would not sell. Really? They just sat there. And I'm like, you know, what do I do now? Yeah. So my buddy, John Cooker, loved it. He owned a recording studio called CD Underbelly, where ultimately that semi-sonic album was recorded. Okay. I met him kind of by accident through another friend who told me to try to convince him not to build this recording studio because there was so little money in the recording studio market. I was so sore at recording, you know, at this point, I was the perfect person to talk to about not starting a recording studio. Yeah. So (laughs) I went to meet with him to tell him not to start a recording studio and all the things that were going to go wrong and everything that could possibly happen. And he just kept nodding his head going, man, wow, yeah, totally. And then, you know, a month later, he was fully into his project of building his recording studio. (laughs) He spent a half half a million dollars or something. It was insane. Oh, my God. I don't know where he got his money, but it was amazing. <laughs> so <laughs> it was probably a quarter million dollars that he built the studio. So I, I, I um, sold the 
earliest prototypes, or not the earliest prototypes, but the earliest production units of the Octane, he bought up all the low serial numbers that I had, anything that I had left in my stock. Yeah. And then he bought up the first fuzz factories, too, because they, they were, you know, they weren't selling. And But he loved the sound. He totally loved the sound. He's like, man, this is completely crazy. <laughs> he was he was really a cheerleader for me. I mean, he was convincing me that this is the piece. He's like, this is the coolest fuzz ever. He goes, What's, we're going to take this to the East Coast. He goes, can you help me? I need somebody to drive with me out to the East Coast to make sure I stay awake. I'm going to drive straight through. Oh, wow. And I'm going to... I have to sell this console in Boston. Oh, my gosh. I was afraid of falling asleep at the wheel. So I, he said, I said, well, how, how are we going to, you know, how am I going to stop it? Can we stop at stores all the way there? And he goes, yeah. He goes, that sounds great. I want to look at every store that we can get to. So all I right. got this vintage, vintage guitar magazine, and that people used to have, you know, print ads in the magazines. Oh, yeah. All the people who had stores. Everybody who had a store was in this magazine. All across the country. Okay. So I looked for all the stores that were in states between here and Boston. And I created this ridiculous route that just went up and down <laughs> and across, back and forth, like everywhere. <laughs> every damn store all the way to Boston. And I must have had 15 stores. It was great. Oh, my God. It took a really long time to drive straight through. I mean, it took a really long time. We might have had to stop. I don't think we stopped and stayed at a hotel. I think he just kept going. It was like a 20-hour, you know, oh, it was crazy. Oh <laughs> but we, we would have to stop at the stores during the daytime. God, I don't remember how he did it. Maybe he slept in the car. I think we had to sleep in the car because he was afraid someone was going to steal the console out of the trailer. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah, we slept in the car. It was a couple of day adventure. <laughs> and it was hard to get to the stores when they were open, you know? So some of them we would roll in just as they were closing or we'd roll in just as they were opening. You know? Yeah. Oh, gosh, yeah. Nobody bought anything. I had a backpack full of pedals. Nobody bought anything. Oh. And I was like, crap. At that point, I had three. I had the Fuzz Factory, the Octane, the Fuzz Factory, and the and the super hard on. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was figuring that the answer was to get in as many stores as possible, and that way, that way, I'd be able to stay alive. You know, but I couldn't get into any stores. In fact, I, I did consignment with a couple of stores, and I, get, I dropped off pedals, and I got a slip from them for a consignment slip. And both of those stores, when I called back later to see if the pedals had sold, they were like, "What pedals?" Oh, I've, I've, got, I've got this consignment slip right here, signed by you know Greg, and then. They, they, the guy would go, well, Greg doesn't work here anymore. Oh, <laughs> you know, both, both the stores that they can sign. But I got to one store when we got to New York. We got to one store called Rudy's Music Stop on 48th Street. Very famous store. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, you got to come in the store. It's the, it's the coolest store ever. Because I've been here a bunch of times. It's totally cool. I'm like, okay, John, we'll go in there. So we went up to the fourth floor. And there was a guy named Tomo. So a German dude. And he was in charge of that floor. It's, these were tiny little floors. It was a very vertical building. Okay. And uh, so everything was on a different floor, and, and each apartment was just a tiny room. You know? And so I walked in, and I looked underneath all the counters, and he had things I had never even heard of before. He had visual sound of volume control. They had like 30 LEDs on it. That would all The colors would all change and turn oh, on as wow. you turned up, pushed on the treadle. I had never seen anything like that before. I was like, wow. Yeah. You know, it must have a little pot on there. He's got, <laughs> that's like a voltmeter that he's using to do that, just to... Just a visual, you know, indicator to tell you where you're at. Yeah. Like, I, it's not that important to do that, but, you know, it looks really cool. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and then there was a whole bunch of other stuff. And I bring the pedal in, I break out the pedals, and I, I and Tomo plays through all of them. And he's making these funny noises with his thick German accent, you know. Yeah. And then he, and he, he just goes, 
No, no, I'm sorry. I can't. Uh, I can't buy any of these pedals from you. They're all too crazy, man. They're just. It's just too crazy. You know, if people play really normal music around here, and they don't, they're not going to buy these crazy pedals or anything like that. You know? Ah, jeez. <laughs> like, oh, great. So I packed up my backpack and went back down the stairs, all dejected. And I'm standing on the street with John, and I'm like, "What do we do now?" We had to pay the $25 per hour parking fee to park the car in the trailer. Oh, and it, went, it was in a ramp, you know. Yeah. And he's like, well, we could go to a deli and get a sandwich, you know? And I was like, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and then I feel this tap on my shoulder. <clears throat> I turn around and Tomo's standing on the street. And it's kind of cold. He doesn't have a coat on. He's got his arms kind of, he's a really skinny guy. He's got his arm wrapped around his, he's wearing a t-shirt, you know, out in the <laughs> cold wintertime. <laughs> he's holding onto his arm. And he's, and he's looking at me and he goes, um, yeah, good. you got one of those fuzz factories? I'd like to buy one of those from you. <laughs> like, oh, gee. What do you mean? You just told me that they wouldn't sell around here. He goes, well, not, not, not for the store, just for me, just for me. And I'm like, wait a minute. Oh. I'm like, you want one? Because, and he goes, yeah, well, I play kind of weird music, so I, I'm kind of a weird guy. <laughs> and I'm like, well, wait a second. Don't you think there's more weird guys like you? And he goes, oh, it's the owners. They'll never let me buy anything weird like that. I know what they're like. They won't let me buy it, you know. Oh, jeez. So I break out a fuzz factory, and I hand it to him. And, and I go, it's, you know, I told him how much it was. I don't remember. Yeah. And he goes, oh, okay, I'll have my record company send you a check. Oh. And I'm like, oh, great. You know, stupid kid comes into the big city and gets ripped off. Yeah, exactly. Feel it coming, you know. And I went home. And we went to Boston. And we found another store. And that the store owner made fun of me. But he ended up being a really big deal. Oh, and, uh, <laughs> I mean, he looked at the pedals. And he was just like, what the hell is this? What are you trying to do? Five knobs? Why is it sideways? What, do you, what is this? <laughs> you know, he just complained about everything. Oh, God. So I... <laughs> I went home with my tail between my legs from that whole trip, and uh, a uh, a month goes by, no check. Two months, you know, no check. Oh. It felt like that long. I don't know. It was weeks and weeks, and uh, the phone rings one day, and um, I answer the phone, and it's Como, and he says, hey, did my record company send you that check yet? And I was like, no. He goes, damn it, I told him to send you the check. I'll get that overnight to you right away. So I get a FedEx envelope. The first time I've ever gotten a FedEx anything, <laughs> personally. I know no one had ever sent me anything by FedEx before. I get this envelope the very next day, and it's got a check in there, and he's even added a little money because he was late paying. You know? Oh, wow. Well, then it's that was like late fall into the beginning of winter, and in January, he called up and he placed an order for like, 40 pedals. Oh my God. It was nuts. It was nuts. I was like, 40? Like, <laughs> how am I going to do that? Like, I don't even know how to make 40 pedals. <laughs> so I had to find it. I had to find Shua Tao. He, he's still my assembler in Minneapolis to this day. I found him and then I found uh, Jason Myrold to paint and I got those guys to put together the pedals for that order. Oh my God. And I was able to ship them out and just, it, it took, we put, we put them together in a couple of weeks and zipped them out there and, Sent them COD and the COD check came back and the check didn't bounce and I was just hey. like, "Wow, <laughs> this is crazy, man! <laughs> That's amazing." The life. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> suddenly, I was in business. Wow! Uh, like kind of making enough money to have guys working for me. You know? That's amazing. It was, it was out of the. It was just uh, you know, freaky. And then I, was, I kept trying to design pedals after that. And I couldn't come up with ideas. I came up with this thing that I wanted to call black box number nine. Okay. But full tone had had a product years before called the black box and it was a power supply. It wasn't even a pedal. Okay. And, um, okay. but he stopped making it. 
so I called up the phone number um, that was on his on the instruction manuals for you know if I went to a store I got the phone number off an instruction manual and I called him or maybe I got it out of the back of a magazine called him up and he answered and I was like hi Mike this is Zachary Vex I make guitar effects and he goes yeah I don't know who you are <laughs> I go well I have this question I was wondering if I could use part of your name for your previous product for my name for my new pedal which I want to call Black Box Number Nine and he goes no oh <laughs> you can't do that <laughs> and I'm like well. It's not exactly the same. He goes, I don't care. You're not oh going to my, my name. <laughs> I'm like, <"Well>, okay. <laughs> he just sounded really mean. I thought the conversation was over. And he goes, what do you make? You know? And I'm like, well, I make the Octane and the Fuzz Factory and Super Hard On. And he goes, well, how many of them have you sold? And I was like, well, I just got my first really big order from Rudy's Music Stop. I sold 40 of them to him. He goes, 40? That's pretty good. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was kind of amazed. I mean, it kind of saved my life. And he goes... He goes, you know what? Don't worry about anything. It's all, you're going to take off. Your company is just going to completely take off. You're going to be a total success. Don't worry about it. Right now, you got into this scene at just the right time. It's exploding. Wow. You're going to love it. And I was like, wow. You're going to love it. <laughs> he was right. I, I did love it. There were years where it was just an explosive growth. It was just crazy. It was, I couldn't believe it. We were doubling every year. It was nuts. Wow. And, and you're creating some really bizarre effects. I mean... I did a lot. I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, that's what you're trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that was one thing I wanted to ask you about. So, how, what is the development process like? Do you do you scheme things out, or do you know what a pedal's gonna sound like before you start working on it? Do you have that? Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes I go in. Sometimes I have that kind of plan. Sure. <laughs> uh, the uh, the in, the lo-fi loop junkie started off as a simple recorder. It was this little kit you could buy from Radio Shack. Once again, we're back to Radio Shack. Yeah. <laughs> it was a little kit you could buy that you, it was just circuit board and it had a microphone dangling off it. It was attached by two wires that were twisted together. And then it had two buttons that were mounted on their tiny, on tiny little printed circuit boards, really cheap little buttons. Okay. And they each had two little twisted wires. And then there was a four AA cell power pack with a little plastic battery holder. That was also attached by two wires. It was just a, it looked like a breath and you pull it out of the bag and it was just loose junk hanging everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I took, I took that thing and I took the microphone off and I changed the input so that it had a DC blocking capacitor. And then I just played guitar into it and it, and it actually worked. I had to change the level going into it cause it was overloading a little bit, but that was easy to do. <laughs> and then I put it in a box and I listened to it and, uh, I, I played through it. And then one of the tests I used to do is I would leave a battery in overnight turned on okay. to see how fast it drained the battery. Oh, okay. Because um, that was the only way I could do to really truly predict. And it was an empirical experiment to, to see what really happens in real life, you know, when you turn yeah. the battery on. So I recorded. I used it to record. It could record for 20 seconds, and I used it to record a little passage on the guitar. And then when you played it back, of course, this cheap recording device, it was a, used a Winbond chip, which is a very strange recorder. And it and it uh, would play back super compressed and <laughs> kind of noisy and um, really dull. All the high end was rolled off. Uh, but it sounded kind of like a music box, you know? Okay. And so if you had it playing in the background while you were playing guitar over the top of it, it sounded like a different instrument. And, and so you could play it into it, and then when you played back, it would sound like it's somebody else, totally somebody else. Oh, wow. Different tone, different texture, and different... Uh, uh, it was like completely compressed and also no high end. So it didn't interfere with your high end. Your high end would shine over the top 
so that you know I never uh, interfere with it. Okay, and that's I, cool. But I left it plugged in overnight, um, and I, actually I left it. I forgot about it for like a week, <laughs> and then I came, <laughs> I came back to it. Well, I played with it for a while, and I really liked it. And then I left it turned on, thinking, "Okay, I'll find out how long the batteries last." But I forgot to check on it. I mean, about a week later, I went and checked on it, and of course, the batteries were really low at that point. Yeah, because I think quite a bit of juice. And uh, I turned I turned it on to listen to the sound, what it sounded like now. And um, my guitar was like coming out of it, going, <laughs> you know, like really, really slowed down. Like it was a totally slowed down recording. Oh my gosh. And some a little light bulb went off in my head, and I was like, "God, that's crazy!" This chip, when the battery voltage goes low, it keeps working, but it runs at the wrong speed, which is fantastic because that meant I could introduce vibrato. Uh, I could make it play back at whatever speed I wanted, so I could warble. You know, I could make the voltage on the battery go, the voltage on the power supply from the battery go up and down, and causing it to go. Over pitch and under pitch, over pitch, under pitch, over pitch, under pitch, so I could make a vibrato. Right. And I started working on that, but before I did, I took that unit that I had, which did work, and I put fresh batteries in it, and I brought it up the street to Twin Town Guitars, not Twin Tone, that was the record label. Right. Twin Town is this really great little shop in Minneapolis on uh, on Lindell Avenue and 33rd Street. Okay. <clears throat> and I, I brought it into uh, the two owners at the time were Jimmy and, and uh, Andrew. And I knew both of them. I'd recorded Andrew before. I might have even recorded Jimmy. And I and I so I set down the thing on the counter, and I was like, I have this little sampler here that is not like any sampler you've ever heard before. It's it's very weird. And uh, and I said, I don't know if you guys would like it, but I just want to know what your opinion is of the texture. I said, I, I really love the texture myself, but I'm not sure if I'm just being quirky, you know. Right, right. So they tried it out, and uh, and Jimmy was kind of like. Yeah, man, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, and he was just didn't look in his eye, you know. And he goes, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this home to my recording studio and uh, do a little work with it. See what I can see. See if it sounds good on the record." Yeah, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, guys, being kind of weird, but yeah, go ahead. So he took it home. He never brought it back. Oh, geez. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Andrew had to kind of beat him up to get it back out of him. I, I had to work for months to get that thing back from him. Oh, he man. would not cop it up. And he finally gave it back, and he was just he, like, he couldn't even pull it out of his hand, you know? It was like, <laughs> <laughs> was like Jimmy, give me my pedal back. It's mine. Because I really, I really, really like this pedal. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll make production units. You can sell them here, and then we'll, you know. Well, a year later, I still didn't have a working unit. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make it work. Oh, man. I couldn't, get out how to, I couldn't figure out how to make it re-trigger so that when you turned it on, it would start from the beginning of the sample. In the original version, it was just playing randomly somewhere in the middle when you turned it on. Oh, it was always running in the background. So it took me forever to figure out how to do that. The chip was very, it fought me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but I figured, I figured out a trick where I was able to do something with the, some of the logic inputs and force it to rewind to the beginning every time you bypassed it and then turn it back on again. Oh, Part wow. of the problem was the true bypass switches back in that day were only double pull, double throw, so you could only do so much with them. So you could... You only had one pin to work with okay. that could be used as a logic pin that would be able to tell the chip, "Hey, it just the thing just got turned off," you know, and then uh, you, then it would know to restart. Okay. And then when you went back on, then it would say, "Oh, yeah, now the thing, now the switch just got turned on again, so I'll start from the beginning." And and but you, because there's only six pins on the switch, and you had to switch all of the audio, and usually you use you use all six pins anyway just for the audio to make it work right. I mean, I was doing a trick that was like, this is not going to work. And so 
like I said, a year later. And then one day, I finally got it to work. So that one, I knew that I wanted that texture that I got when you recorded your voice through the microphone. Yeah. And I wanted to have that texture on the guitar. Then, after hearing the pitch drop, I knew that I wanted to make a vibrato using that pitch thing by changing the voltage on the power supply. Right. So I, I, I guess I decided to make my decisions about that based on what it could do and how I could improve it as I was going, you know? Yeah. So that one, you know, the device itself, I was, once again, transforming somebody else's device into something that I could use, you know? Mm-hmm. So I didn't end up using those Radio Shack boards. I ended up finding out what the chip was, and I found out that it was made by Windbond. Oh, and okay. then I found out that they had a series of ones that had pins instead of surface mount. And then uh, I was able to stick it into a socket. And then the only way I could build a whole circuit on my tiny little circuit boards, which were all the same size, just like four inches wide and one inch high. Okay. The, um, I, had to put all the, I had to put a whole bunch of components underneath the chip, the big chip. that is a, It's like a 28-pin chip. So I had to build this little... I had to build these two rows of tall sockets to hold the chip way up off the board to make room underneath it for components. And then I filled up the whole, I populated the whole area underneath the chip as well as all around it. Oh, my God. That was the only way I could fit it all together. Oh, jeez. A, a lot of hidden stuff inside the little <laughs> tricky. It was really the most complicated thing I'd ever done by myself. I, anyway, I was so exhausted. But I had put it away in disgust so many times during that year while you know, I gave up <laughs> on it. But I kept coming back, kept coming back until finally it stuck and it worked. And then, of course, Jimmy bought one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he didn't have to give it back. Yeah, and then he wanted that original prototype. He was like, oh, you know, what I really liked about the original prototype, man, was that, you, know, you, you didn't know what it was going to do when you turned it on. You didn't know what it was going to be playing. It could be doing anything. I really like that about that. <laughs> You're right, worked so hard to try to organize the sound, and he didn't like the fact that I made it all organized. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, so the lo-fi loop junkie kind of put me on the map. Before that, I had done uh, the Sequa. The Sequa was supposed to be a ring modulator. Okay. And I figured out how to make a sequencer by buying this... uh, book about synthesizers where none of the circuits worked. None. No. Oh. I built I built all these circuits out of this book and they were super simple. And I was like, God, this is amazing. I love elegant, you know, simple circuits. Yeah. And I would wire them up. Not one of them worked. Oh, <laughs> Except for one. The one that worked, well actually there were two. Um the one was the super hard on circuit, which was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. He was using that that was the first time I was introduced to that particular transistor, the BS one seventy. And it wasn't, it wasn't his circuit that I built. I had to modify the circuit completely to make it work because the way he had it built, it didn't work. But I kept oh, messing geez. with it until I made it work. And then I, I had something. Oh, my god! So gosh. I had a new pedal with that. It was super hard on. What I was going for there was super, super high input impedance so I could make a really sheeny sound, like a really bright high end, really clear. Not exaggerated, but pure, shiny, okay. clear, crystal, trans- completely transparent. You can only do that by taking the load off the guitar completely. So I had a 5 million ohm input of beans, which other people wouldn't do because it's unnatural. <laughs> you know, it's like it, it causes problems. It causes popping noises when you turn on the pedal. I was like, screw that. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just play it, you know, 
the cord while you're turning it on. It'll cover up the pot. You'll never hear it. You know? Yeah, there you go. You work, you work around some of my favorite pedals that are made by other companies pop when you turn them on. You know, so what? Yeah, exactly. Part of the part of the business is it goes with the territory. So the uh, the the thing that I found that worked was a logic circuit that did a sequence of um, of ten LEDs, and so it would light up ten LEDs, and it would produce ten different voltages. And I was like, oh, that's it. And it would do it in order, go round and round and round. And then it had a speed control. Well, I built that circuit, and it actually worked. <laughs> I was like, wow, it works. So I, I figured out a way to build it all onto a circuit board, and I built it all onto there completely. And then all I had left for real estate was this tiny little area, about one centimeter by one centimeter. Okay. And I was like, what am I going to put in there? I, I had originally planned on putting a, um, a ring modulator in there, but... That requires little transformers. So that means I was going to have to have a second board. Well, uh, there was no place to put that second board. I couldn't, there was no place to fit it inside the box, you know? Okay. There was no way to mount it. So I was like, okay, screw the ring modulator part. What else could I control with the sequencer? <laughs> and I, I had this wah-wah by color sound that I loved. It was just the funnest, prettiest, most synthesizer-sounding wah-wah. But really gentle too, without sounding too filtery. It sounded, it just sounded uh, watery and phasey when you swept it. It would change phases while it's flying, you know. Oh, nice! I really adored it. It was, um, it was made by Dick Denny. He, you know, I think he was building them in his kitchen at the time. He was kind of semi-retired, <laughs> and um, it was a new circuit. I'd never seen it before. It was used a twin T filter. It didn't use a inductor like a regular wah does. Okay. And because regular inductors, those that's what makes that quacky kind of wah sound that's traditional like you know Hendrix kind of wah yeah yeah but this was different this was a you know a different kind of sound and I really loved it so I went I went inside that I'd never opened it before and I looked in there and here was this teeny weeny little circuit there was nothing to it one transistor a handful of resistors capacitors all really tiny and I was able to squeeze that circuit I had to copy it I, there was no schematic so I had to figure oh, out how to oh, it, you know <laughs> I stole the circuit and then I put that into the corner of the little tiny corner of the board and it just, I filled up every hole that I had on the perk board, <laughs> literally every hole. Oh. I was using strip boards at the time, which was this kind of invention that I came up with when I saw the inside of a Marshall, uh, well, they have these three transistor fuzzes and I can't remember, Supa fuzz maybe it's called? Oh, I remember that Supa? one. Maybe it's a Supa. Maybe it might be the Supa, it might be Super, but I'm pretty sure it's Supa. So the, that thing, I saw the construction inside there and saw that they were using strips of metal. Like it wasn't solid copper, it was stripes going all the way across. And then there was holes all over, everywhere. You know, it was like perk board. Okay. But it had stripes going across it. And then they would cut the stripes wherever they want to interrupt the signal so they could make short connections, short, short wires going oh. across the board or yeah, short okay. traces, you know, long traces. Yeah. It starts off all long, but then they would just cut, cut out spaces in between. So that's what I was doing to build my pedals at the time. I was building them all on these on these strip boards. And uh, so on the strip board, I was able to just squeeze in. I used up every hole in the corner of the strip board to get that wow, wow circuit in there. And that thing sounded amazing. That was the Sequa. I was really proud of that. That was so. It had you know eight. It had nine knobs on it. Now I was up to nine. <laughs> I was like. I had a I had a little button made that said for the Nam show that said give me enough knobs and I could control the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you you made just obsessed with well, having you, the most knobs of anyway. Well, you made some weird stuff. Like you kind of have to explain the Invento box to me. 
You want one? Yeah. <laughs> That's really one cheap. <laughs> I got a whole pile of them. They did not sell. Oh. I thought they would be. I thought they would be a great idea for like a father son thing. You know, like I thought if my dad had been an electronics repair guy, you know, and I had and I had that at home, he could teach me how to you know wire up my own guitar pedal. I could design my own guitar circuit. You know, see, and because it, the whole thing is so flexible. It, it's got a. It, it had like everything I'd ever done. All the parts I ever needed to build any of my pedals, they had them all in one place, and it had a little experimenter socket plug in circuit board, so you could you know plug the parts in and just temporarily build something, or you could build it permanent and close it up and just use it. You know, that's what I love it's really about lovely. the thing. It's it's so cool because my son is really into electronics and and taking TVs and radios and everything apart, and he's taking guitar lessons. He knows how to play. But that's it's not his big passion like like music is is mine. But I thought that would be a a cool project that we could end up doing together. So that, that's w- one of the things I wanted to ask you about was you know how you came up with that idea because it, it's fascinating. I've never seen anything like it. Well, that's exactly what it was. It was me imagining an imaginary dad. You know, if I was a kid, what would I want? You know, yeah. So that's why I, I made it for me as a kid. That's that's awesome. See, and that's that's what I love about this your, your company is that you just do things that are that are so different, like uh, uh, the probe series of effects. Yeah, you know why I did those. Why? I, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't afford the casting for that flat foot thing. Remember, I wanted to make a casting. Yes. And then I looked into that again. I wanted to make Wawa castings. And at the time, no one was selling the raw Wawa castings. Okay. Not that I could find. Somebody was selling them somewhere, but I couldn't find people. I'm no internet once again. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, in fact, yeah, that was, let me think. The internet had just appeared, but there was nothing on it. Yeah. That you couldn't find, you couldn't find Wawa cases on there yet. Right. <laughs> but like there was, there was uh, chat rooms and shit like that. Hey, I swore. Sorry. That's okay. So I, You're allowed to I, do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought about it, and I was like, okay, how about if I had a proximity sensor instead of a treadle? It would be a lot cheaper to build because it wouldn't have any moving parts. So amazing. So I, I went to this plastics company. Before I got started on this, I, it was acrylic fabricators. The same building, <laughs> crazily enough, years later, I had a chance to join the breeders, but that's a different story. <laughs> Um, but, <laughs> totally different story. The acrylic fabricators had the, all this extra space in their factory, so they had, you know, they would rent out practice space, space upstairs, and you know, and then and, and John Cougar ended up with a practice space up there, and he ended up playing with the breeders, and then he asked me to join, but I said oh no because I had a so I was too busy. Jeez. And then he ended up quitting because they were too mean to him. Oh, so just <laughs> <laughs> they were really mean. Um, so <laughs> it's just too volatile. You know, they've known each other for too long. Those damn deals. <laughs> yeah, those damn deals. What's the damn deal? <laughs> so anyway, I guess. <laughs> anyway, uh, what was I saying? Oh, so I went to acrylic, acrylic fabricators. I said, how much would it cost to make these? I need to make these plastic wedges out of acrylic. I'm going to get started on this project unless I know make these pieces. Yeah. And they gave me a quote, and the price was much lower than I thought it would be. <laughs> you know, That's I was good. like, Three bucks a piece or something. You know? Oh wow! So I was like, "Wow, that's amazing! This this is totally workable." And um, and then I researched the switch to see if I could get a tall switch so I could use the switch to hold the thing on to hold the treadle on, which is strangely enough 
I mean, I shouldn't even be saying this, but the only thing that holds that together is the, is the nut on the switch. <laughs> it holds the whole thing together. Wow. <laughs> it's one nut. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah. It's just the, the paint is so sticky that when you tighten up that nut, it uh, presses it down into the paint, and then the treadle can't, can't the plastic wedge can't twist because it's stuck to the paint so bad. Oh, In wow. fact, if you try to repair them, you have to undo that switch sometimes because the switches will go bad occasionally, you know, and then yeah. when you take that nut off, the paint all breaks loose off the face of the pedal. So, you know, you wrecked the look of the pedal when you take them apart. So uh, you have to be really, wow. really careful. You have to like clamp the top to the, you have to clamp the enclosure to the plastic while you're taking out that nut. Otherwise you'll just, the paint has a lot of flaws in that design. Not, when you put it together, it's fine, you yeah. know, but you just can't ever take it apart again. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you learn these things as you go, you know, it's like, don't do that again. Don't yeah. do that again. <laughs> well, not everybody's you and taking their, their pedals apart either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, when you get bad switches, you know. So the, uh, so I had that part figured out, and then I had to figure out how the proximity thing was going to work. Now that I knew that I could possibly manufacture them, I sat down and worked on the proximity thing, and that was a couple of months of screwing around. <laughs> and I would, I was... At that point, I was living with Jason Myrell, the painter. We had a three-bedroom apartment. I had two of the bedrooms I was paying for because I needed a workspace. Yeah. And he would he would paint the pedals uh, in a little back closet in the off the uh, living room area. Oh, jeez. Where he, he put he taped two boxer fans together and blew the the fumes out the window. Okay. And then he he had a compressor and he sprayed using automotive paint. Oh wow! And the smell. He lived on a on a building. He lived in a building that. Oh, no, 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 this is different. That was later. Let's see. The boxer fan. He must have done it on the deck. When the apartment that we lived in, he blew the smell out onto the deck. Oh, jeez. So, and it was a it was shared deck. Everybody on our floor would walk around on this deck. But oh. it, was, it was shielded from the rain, and I think it was, it was a, you know, we kind of used that as an area for smelly things. But <laughs> so, I had a TV in my room, my work room. So I could sit and watch TV while I was tinkering with stuff. And um, I had it turned on while I was building the first proximity thing, which was powered up using an actual plug-in power supply, so it had a lot of current available. Okay. So I didn't realize how powerful it was. I hadn't checked to see how much current it was drawing, but it was it was turning into kind of a powerful transmitter. And um, so it's transmitting radio frequency, right? So. I'm adjusting, I'm putting my hand next to the antenna going up and down. I'm checking to see if I'm able to change the brightness of an LED so that I can use it to control a, an, an optoisolator, which is what I, how that thing works. And and the TV starts doing crazy shit. I look at the screen, and it's got these patterns of, like, rows of black dots that are getting bigger and smaller and moving around. It's creating this interference pattern on the screen, you know? Oh, wow. I'm like, wow, I'm transmitting in the TV band. I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> And I and I put my I kept changing this you know and I kept changing settings and adjusting it looking to see if I could change the patterns and I was really fascinated by how psychedelic it was. Yeah, I was like Jason, you should come in here and take a look at this. <laughs> and before he could even get to the room, the TV just went. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and that was it. Gee. I blew out the front end. The signal was so strong that it blew out the front end of the TV. Wow. And then I was like, wait a minute, I can't do this. I'm going to be I'm going to make a transmitter that wrecks people's equipment. <laughs> All you know whether. And so I, I went. I went and looked at the circuit and just completely redesigned it with a completely different series of CMOS chips that were, you know, really, really low current. And I ran it off a battery from then on so it wouldn't produce enough power to wreck anything. <laughs> and I kept, I kept making it weaker and weaker and weaker and more and more sensitive. I mean, as far as the transmitter transmitting out very, very weak signal and then a more and more sensitive. And we've, we did the FCC tests on it. It doesn't even 
it doesn't even budge the meter, so it's not. It doesn't transmit anything anymore. Oh. But the first one, <laughs> that first one, crazy. Now, but it was. It's all. It was all economics, man. That was the only reason I chose that. I never would have done it. I would have done it with the treadle if I could get them, but I just couldn't get them. Well, it's. I it's, couldn't afford them. It really is crazy. I'm. I love those things. They're so. They're so different. They're so unique. I. I thought it was a, a brilliant idea. To be honest with you. Yeah, I was, I was kind of proud of it, too. It was different for everybody because if you had a real thick sole in your shoe, it didn't work so well. If you had rubber rubber tennis shoes or bare feet or socks, or you know, everything was different. You know? Oh, wow. I, I didn't so even think of that. Sensitive. People were sensitive about that, yeah. All right, so you, you have two two effects. We have two effects that, that, I, I, that I've seen that just fascinate me. And I Uh-oh. would love a – well, I, more than just two because my, my favorite – effects pedal that you've done that I, I one of these days i'm going to buy myself is the machine because i love the way that sounds yeah that was originally the black box number nine that, that was oh, a, that's what that was okay that was yeah i had to call it the machine because i got in that discussion with full tone and he told me i couldn't use the name and i then i put it away and actually the original prototype says in paint i had so many prototypes that i built and then i would set them aside and i'd forget what was in them because they're in a blank box you know <laughs> with a, it's, i'm looking at something that has got three knobs and a switch and i'm and, I'm, and it's in a plain metal box and i'm like what is that <laughs> because there are you know piles of them oh, and and I, I i wrote on this one no damn good i wrote on it with a with a uh, paint pen oh, and then i was thinking you know i could release it under that name no damn good you know and that would intrigue people yeah so, <laughs> but I, I, I listened to, and that was a library visit. Sometimes pedals resulted from library visits and, and the super hard on and the, uh, Sequa both came from a book. All right. I said that I bought that book. I didn't buy the book. Here's the truth. I stole the book from the library, but I paid them. I paid them for it. Well, I went back and I said the book was, you know, the book was stolen. Oh, yeah. And I didn't say I stole it. Right. The book was stolen, right? So I didn't quite lie. And then, yeah, exactly. and then I said how much, and, I, and they made me pay him like 30 bucks. But it was out of print and they never got it in again, and which was a good thing because it didn't confound the next person <laughs> with all those circuits that didn't work, which <laughs> drove me crazy. <laughs> waste of time, man. Don't waste my time. You know? so, how does that happen? How do you print a book with circuits and they don't even work? I don't know. The guy was in that. He never did any other books. I'm sure <laughs> after the publisher found out that he was just full of nonsense. Like, <laughs> yeah. They were like, screw that guy. Stay away from him. Oh, it's man. a goofy, it's a goofy little book. I still got it sitting above my bench as a reminder. Oh man. Um, it's a, <laughs> anyway, that was a library visit, that one. And then another library visit was the, uh, was the machine. I, I went there in search of frequency multipliers. I wanted to create fifths. So I needed to multiply a frequency, the fundamental frequency, by three. Okay. Because when you multiply by two, it's an octave up. And if you multiply by three, it's a fifth above the octave. Okay. A natural, a natural fifth right. above the octave. Not, not a well-tempered fifth, but a, a natural, <laughs> like a harmonic, like a harmonic fifth. Okay. So, which is a pretty sound. I mean, harmonic fifths are beautiful. So I, I uh, found this circuit that said frequency trumpler on it. And it was a radio radio circuit for high frequency radio stuff. And I was like, no way. There was nothing to it. Two transistors. Oh, That's wow. It. And I was like, this is nuts. I mean, you have to put a couple support components in there, but it was two transistors that were wired up in a very peculiar way. So they were handshaking right. and um, they were turning off and on at different points during the wave. And it would cause the wave to um, be traveling up, through zero 
past zero for a moment, stop, go back down through zero, stop, and then go back up through zero again and continue on its way. So you could put a sine wave in, and a sine wave would come out, but every time it crossed through the zero class line, going right through the center, if you draw a line through the center of the sine wave, mm-hmm. every time it crossed through the zero class line, it would have to stop, turn around, and then go again. And so it created this little jaggedy wiggle, like a little a little oh. pointy sine, uh, triangle wave wiggle in there. Okay. And when you played harder, your signal was taller, which meant that the that the sine wave was steeper when it was passing through zero, and it made those those jiggles get really close together, so they were higher frequency. Okay. And then when you when the signal died down, as the notes died away, they'd start to expand left to right, and they'd unfold like accordion pleats. Wow. So the machine has got two of those circuits in a row in it, along with a couple of boosters. There's a booster going in at the beginning, and then there's the two of those machine those machine you know filter circuits, and then there's an out- output boost. That's all it consists of. Wow. And and you know what it does is when you play, when the notes are first loud going into it, the, it goes you know, and it makes this high pitch noise. Yeah. So you can hear those little triangles, and it goes as those die away, as the notes die away, it, the frequency drops on that on that song. Absolutely. Trent Reznor is the only one who ever used that machine, that the machine to any, you know, to make it famous. He put it in a couple of songs for Nine Inch Nails. I, I love that sound. I absolutely love the sound of that pedal. It's, it's amazing. Well, it's, it just it's cuts extremely through. unusual because it does all of its fuzzy noise in the middle of the wave instead of at the top and bottom. So when you when you put all of the fuzz at the top and bottom, you're you're messing around with every other thing in your signal chain that is doing exactly the same thing. Your fuzzes are all going to do that. Your distortions are all going to do that, and then your amp's going to do that when it's turned up loud. So Jeez. all the types of distortion are com- being compounded at the top and bottom of the wave. But this does everything in the middle, so there's nothing to mess with it. It's the only thing messing around with the middle. That in fact, makes sense. Okay. It, makes it's, it makes it sound as the speaker cone is coasting through the middle of its movement. There's, there's excursion, and I guess what I call incursion, when the speaker cone goes out, and then it gets sucked in, and then there's the you know the surround mm-hmm. on, in a basket. There's a surround that goes around the cone, yeah, yeah. And the cone gets the cone gets pushed out against the surround, and then it gets pulled back against the surround. And when you let go of the cone, if you stop, if you're using your fingers to do that, you let go of it. It just pops to a center point and it stays in the middle. That's the zero zero cross line. It's just sitting there waiting. You know. Okay. It has to pass through that. It has to pass through that zero cross line every single time, and it's coasting. So. At that moment, your amp is doing no work. It's not putting out any power. That's when your tubes are actually having a chance to cool during that tiny moment as the speaker's coasting through the middle. Middle there, there's no voltage uh, being applied. Okay, point. okay. And so I interrupt that, and right there, as it's passing through the zero cross, I make the speaker shake like a like a bee's wing, going, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that's what makes that sound. That's and that's why it's so clear because it doesn't matter how much distortion you're using after the machine. All that applies to the tips when the speaker's all the way out and when the speaker's all the way in. That's when the distortion distortion is being applied and has to try to reproduce that, the details of that crunch at those limits. But my machine 
does the thing in the it wiggles in the middle where nobody's no, no, none of the other pedals and nothing in the amp is creating any sound there because there's zero voltage being applied. And I suddenly sneak in there with this thing and go, hey, by the way, you have to do work right now during your break. You're working during your break now. Sorry. <laughs> we noticed you had a little free time. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to put you to work here. That's, that's not what, allowed. That's yeah, <laughs> that's what that's what it does, and 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 that's why you can be put it you can put it in front first, you know, after your guitar, mm-hmm. which is where you should put it, and oh. then it can go through any kind of distortion you want, and it will always be audible. It's oh. always still there because it because it, it it cuts through in the middle of the wave, not not the top and the bottom. That's amazing, and and I have to ask you about two more pedals before I've, I've kept you a while tonight, but and I, I've it's been fascinating. And I have a question about two things that I've seen you create. One is the Candela Vibrophase. Yeah. How, how in the hell did you come up with that? That thing is so steampunk wild. <laughs> I, well, I, when I first saw steampunk stuff, you know, I saw the theme of it. I thought, man, this is totally cool. I love this steampunk shit, you know. Yeah. And then... I noticed that it was all fake. None of it does anything. Right. <laughs> it's all just a bunch of pipes that go nowhere and extra wires and, you know, extra valves and meter, meters. And I'm like, none of this does anything. What? You guys are just a bunch of fakes. You know, yes. it's just, a, it's just fashion, you know, yep. steampunk is just fashion. That's sick. Why isn't it real? It should be doing something. <laughs> well, I have this German friend who, who makes these, these Sterling engines. And I got one from him. And I was so amazed at the construction quality and how spectacular the thing was and how it always worked and how cute it was and how mesmerizing it was. I was like, I got to make a guitar pedal that uses this as the motor <laughs> to turn something. You know, I have to. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then I was thinking, how am I going to, will you use an electric heater? You plug it in and you use an electric heater instead of a flame, you know? Yeah. And I was looking at the flame and I'm like, oh, a flame is mesmerizing too. You want the flame, you know? <laughs> and it's dangerous, yeah. which adds another element. Because I was always into the high voltage, you know, and the threshold of things. Like, I might get to the point where it could hurt somebody. Right. <laughs> Pulling stuff up, you know. Yeah. So I, I, <laughs> I'm staring at it, and I'm like, I wonder if the flame can produce enough electricity with a solar cell to actually drive a pedal. Jesus. So it doesn't. <laughs> 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 so, so I had to redesign my whole pedal technology to bring the impedances up really, really high. So the output impedance is super high on that thing. It's like, it's almost the same as a guitar. Oh, wow. It doesn't, it doesn't improve impedance at all. Okay. <laughs> God. Sorry, I had to eat another bite of burrito. That's perfectly um, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I was able to get eight volts, maybe. Okay. Out of it. But I couldn't draw more than 0.1 milliamp. Ah, and I wanted the thing to sound really pretty. I wanted it to sound as pretty as as Hendrix's Univibe. Right? Yeah, yeah. But it, but a different sound. But in that in that in that world, in that flavor, in that kind of swirly world. You know? Okay. So I created a uh, a circuit that used four photocells that were controlling, you know, basically phasor circuits. But the circuit is sort of a mixture of phase and wah, kind of like the color sound wah wah was. Mm-hmm. Okay. But not not based on that. That's a twin T. This is different. This is based on phase shift. Once again, library stuff. I went to the <laughs> library and I looked at old uh, 
circuits for organs. That's another great source for oh. electronics for guitar organs, old organs from the 40s, oh, 50s, wow. 60s. Those kinds of circuits, they're full of all kinds of weird tricks. Oh, and uh, so I took ideas from there and combined them. And then what I did was I just kept, I took my super hard on circuit and I modified it so that the impedance was so ridiculously high that it was almost too high to be used for a guitar pedal output. You know, it was like it was, I basically let it go all the way to the point where it was nearly at the point where a guitar is. Oh, wow. So the guitar, a guitar, the output impedance of a guitar is, is labeled as a nominal 1 million ohms. Okay. Well, that's not true. The output impedance of a guitar is, is much closer to 5 million for certain frequencies. Ah. But people just don't know that, and that's why those frequencies disappear, and that's why you never hear them unless you play through a super hard-on. So ah. when you... When you, in the circuit, I just kept making the circuit float. It's just, basically, it's just barely holding together. Like, it's just floating there with almost no current running through it at all. But it, it's receiving instructions, you know, and the candle is used to light up, and then there's, it goes light, dark, light, dark, but the spinning disc that has got a painted uh, pattern on it. Right. And the painted pattern opens up to let the light through, and that illuminates the photocells, which changes the phase. <laughs> And part of the trick was to get photocells that would react at the right speed oh and also have the right range, like a super wide range with a very little change in light because the candle's not very bright. Right. <laughs> it was a lot of tweaking, man. It was a lot of tweaking. And I, and I didn't know what to do to control the speed. And I was going to make something that would just rub against the wheel. I figured I could make like a little felt thing that would rub against the, the wheel on the, uh, the, the flywheel on the uh, uh, Sterling engine. Mm -hmm. And... And then I talked to Jurgen about it, my buddy who builds the things, and he goes, oh, when we want to control the speed over here, we just use a magnet. And he goes, let me show you a video. And he sent me a video, and uh -huh. it, he, he was holding a magnet in his hand, and he held it up to the wheel, and it slowed way down. On it. And it's something called eddy currents. Okay. Um, when, you bring, when you bring a magnet up to a moving conductor, like a, a spinning wheel like that, it generates current inside the wheel, and then the wheel creates its own magnetic field that fights against the magnet and it slows down the wheel. Oh, wow. Because it's generating, it's generating electricity and it's having to do work. And so you're turning the wheel into a generator that is actually burning its own power inside of itself, inside the oh, wheel itself. God. This is so it's wasting it as heat by generating electricity inside of the flywheel. So I, that's the speed control. Is a big, it's a one-inch diameter neodymium. I think it's an N40. I think it's what the designation is, N40. I, you would know that better than I would. N95 masks is all I can think of right now because N95, N95. <laughs> N95 yeah, I know. I got one of those. <laughs> might be M. It might be M40. Some kind of, it's got whatever that number is. It's 40. Yeah. It's about as high as you get when I strip first around them. It might be higher. You, can, you might be able to get them higher now. Oh. But um, I, I put that on there to control the speed. And, and when we were designing it, I went into my machinist. I have this buddy named Michael Lynch, and he's so cool. He's got a machine shop in his basement. He'll, he can do anything. Oh, wow. And he's super knowledgeable. And he, he's just, he's like an inst walking encyclopedia. He never forgets anything. So I walked in and I said, I need to build this, you know, machine. And I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. And he goes, well, where's the drawings? And I said, there's no drawings. It's all up in my head. <laughs> but it's not really in my head yet because I need to see what happens. We have to start building it and then I'll have to look at it and I can imagine what we have to build next. Oh, and he goes, yeah. this, he goes, you're just weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I said, will you do it? And he's, he's like 50 bucks an hour, you know, and I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we got started. And I started 
we, I, I brought him a bunch of pieces of metal the first day we were working on it, and I said, okay, I've got this beautiful piece here, but it's the surface needs to be, you know, shined up. So I, he, he figured out a way to do it so he could get this really swirly pattern in the metal when he, when he cut it. So he cut it down so it was perfectly square. That was the base, and he got this beautiful pattern going on it. He goes, hey, okay, what's next? We got that. And I said, well, I'm going to need something tall to stand the motor on, so we need to put a stand up that, you know, holds the motor, a post. So we put the post up that was the right diameter to meet the base of the, of the Sterling engine. Mm-hmm. And then we put on a couple other poles on there to go up and hold other pieces. And he was watching. He's like, what are we making? And I said, well, you'll, you'll understand. He's a guitar player, too. You know? I said, you'll understand when we get there, but you're not going to understand until we get there because, <laughs> you know. It, it <laughs> so we got it all done. I just kept talking my way through it, saying, well, we're going to need a platform here. We're going to need something that slides here. We're gonna, and I'd, I'd scribble little things on a piece of paper. And oh it was just kludged together. And then one day <laughs> we were done. And I had the electronics. I had tested the electronics using my hand in front of a candle, you know. Oh, my gosh. Just move my hand up and down, you know, to, to be the, you know, the moving, the moving light source. Right, light yeah. Source. And I brought all the pieces over to his shop, and we, I started screwing it all together, and we turned it on and plugged it in, and he played his one chord on his guitar through it, and it just went, you know, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. <laughs> it made the sound. It didn't, wow. wasn't perfect yet. But it made the sound. Once again, it was one of those one of those days where you turn it on and it works. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even have to jiggle it like I did with a little yeah. with a little blue uh, fishing tackle box. <laughs> That's incredible. He was, he was astounded. He goes, "What did we just build?" He goes, "What is this thing?" <laughs> it looked like a game of mousetrap. You know, yeah. it was like a. <laughs> oh, every, everybody listening has got to check out the demo video that that's on your website because it's incredible. <laughs> he was so. He was so astounded. He was absolutely astounded that we that we did that. He's like, if I had any idea this was what we were doing while I was doing it, because I wouldn't have had you know I wouldn't have had any doubts about what you were doing. I, I really <laughs> thought you were insane. Because <laughs> I thought this was going to be because we've done so many projects where it just went we work and work and work and work for a month, you know, and that goes nowhere. Yeah. Oh my God, I built things with him that you would not believe. I, oh God. <laughs> I have partially completed projects with him that I got frustrated with him because I do that. I get I, I can work on it for so long and I get to a point where I just want to scream, but I don't have that temperament. I, I can't break things or you know scream or pull my hair out or yeah. I, my way of my way of handling it is to simply move on to something completely different and just clear my head, and do something else, you know. Okay, and then come back to it someday if I if I have to. Right, if you have I built, to. <laughs> I, built this, I built this thing with him that used. Over a hundred micro switches. Oh wow! To to carefully connect up um, a giant bank of supercapacitors in parallel, so they could be charged off a battery. And then, when all the switches were released, they'd all be in series, and they'd be a high voltage power supply for a tube amp. Oh wow! And the idea was to make a battery powered tube amp that had no switching devices in it. No AC. It produced a pure battery-like high-voltage section with absolutely no no sound and was and no general no frequency high frequency generation wow. no no switching circuitry. So there was no support. Of the, you know the electronics basically was you know, like it was like a twenties radio, but where you would have to buy two or three different batteries for your radio. One was the B battery that was a high voltage, and it was like twenty-two and a half, forty-five. Or 90 was the voltage. Okay. There's this long thing filled with cells. Right. And have you ever taken apart? Have you ever taken apart a 9 volt battery? 
You know what? I have not. I know my son has, even though I've told him not to. <laughs> Inside of it, there's a stack of six one-and-a-half-old cells that are real small. Okay. Each one, one of them looks like a slice of spam. Okay. You know, we're back to spam again. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> it all comes back to spam. But you'd think that I would have grown up on spam. I think I only had it once in my life. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you only have to have it once. And then yeah. it's like, oh, oh spam, right? Okay. <laughs> it's kind of like SpaghettiOs. You have that once. And it's like, yeah. oh, SpaghettiOs, right? Okay. Yeah, that's enough. <laughs> Rather go hungry. Yeah. <laughs> so, inside these 90-volt batteries, there was like 10 times as much. 10 times 6 would be 60 cells. Wow. Because they're one and a half volts each. Okay. And they're all stacked up in a long You can still buy them. You can buy 90-volt B batteries online for old antique radios. Oh, wow. There's a company that makes them. There's one, one company left in America that makes them. Oh, jeez. I was going to use those. I was thinking of using those. And then they were so freaking expensive. I was like, oh, they're gonna, everybody's <laughs> just going to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> you mean I have to buy a $40 battery and it's disposable? What yeah. the hell? You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I... <laughs> So I, I figured out how to hook up all these capacitors in series and make this super long string, you know, fake B battery that was high current that could run like a, you know, a 10 watt or 5 watt amplifier. But the switch system, which used this giant lever and uh, this complicated set of, of hinges and stuff, like we could never get it to work. That thing was really elegant, though. That, that, that thing was destined to be the most beautiful creation up until that point. Now I've done something else that I'm even more proud of. Oh, but, yeah. Um, that thing, yeah, it's kind of an offshoot from that. It's a miniaturized version of it. But that thing was on, it was on its way. I had drawings done for it, too, where I was, you know, this is how the frame is going to look. Like, the outside corners, and maybe I'll still do this someday, but the outside corners, all the edges were going to be brass rod, like half-inch brass rod. So okay. every corner, all the way around the edge, the top frame of the amp, the bottom, you know, all the way down the sides of the amp, yeah. Every edge of the box was going to be a brass rod with a brass ball at every corner. Oh, so wow. One and a quarter inch brass ball at every corner. Oh, my gosh. I thought that would be really, really pretty. Yeah. And I had all, all uh, fine copper mesh screen as the uh, as the uh, grill cloth. And oh, uh, wow. it was, I mean, the whole thing was really fun. It was just full of fun stuff. It was super steampunk. It was really kooky. <laughs> well, I have one more thing I wanted, one more effect. I, well, actually, it's not even really an effect. I wanted to know what made you branch out into microphones with the T-ball mic, and it, it's got it's a wah feature to it. How did that all transpire? <laughs> that thing's crazy. We're so sorry, Uncle Albert. That sort of thing, and instantly switched to full voice. Huh. Hey, full response. It feels like it was forever ago. <laughs> it's another one of those things that I feel like it failed. Um, oh, really? But I'm always trying to come up with things that draw attention to the brand, you know? Yeah. Whether or not they sell is unimportant. To me, it's whether or not they leave the impression with the user that excites their imagination and, and gives them a chance to think about, you know, like, wow, what a crazy idea. A yeah. wah inside of a mic. That's, you know, fun. Yeah, exactly. But the idea with that, you know, the, the idea behind that was that I wanted to come up with a microphone that would give you complete rejection in all directions, except when you're way up next to it. It's amazing, because I was watching the uh, the demo videos, and, you know, it's it's incredible how how successful that was, I guess, would be the best way to put that. 
Oh, do you mean uh, how it rejects sound successfully? Yeah, it's, it's very good at doing that. But, you know, the, the execution on that particular piece, I don't know. It's cute. It's not as elegant. It doesn't have the... It doesn't seem grand to me. You know, when I was all done with it, I looked at it and I was like, this is dorky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I thought it was... It's, it's more quaint than, than really elegant and grand. I mean, when I look at the the um, Candela vibrophase, that thing just looks like a small city. So when I first looked at it, the it first does. time we were done, it was like it was like going into like a like flying over mosques in Istanbul. You know? Yeah, <laughs> that's what it looked like to me. I was like, oh wow, like looking, you know. And then that that running, that's so industrious. That little Sterling engine we're seeing there running and the candle flickering and it's beautiful. You know, it's really special. It really is. It's a it's a piece of art, and and it sounds really cute too. It's a very very pretty. But man, it's just at the threshold of not working. <laughs> very, very bleeding edge. Anything goes wrong if that candle starts to burn down, you know, it's over. But you do get, you do get a, a couple of good hours of playing out of it. Oh, that's that's and, good. And it's terribly inspiring to have it sit there running. You know, I, I took one, I delivered one to a music store out in uh, New York called um, Lark Street Guitars. Okay, Buzzy. The guy that runs it. He was one of my earliest dealers. Super cool guy. Okay. And um, he bought two. Oh wow! Because he couldn't stand he couldn't stand apart with the first one, and someone wanted to buy it, so he had to buy a second one to sell them, and because he wanted to keep it for himself, the first one. <laughs> oh man, I don't blame him. We set it up on his counter in his store, and everybody who came in the store just stood there with their mouth gaping open, like <laughs> what. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> and they couldn't they couldn't walk away. They were just hypnotized. It was really fun. It's really amazing. It is a beautiful piece. So I'm thinking the next thing you do is got to have like a Jacob's Ladder in it or something. We uh, something something really because I, I don't know what else would would top the Candela Viber face. Yeah, yeah. Jacob's Ladder open air arcs like that. <laughs> They're um <laughs> in order to really sound like a Jacob's Ladder, it has to have so much current that it becomes really dangerous. Yeah, so but that's, can, that's what you specialize in. Really high voltage, but I mean, it, it's the kind of high voltage that's out in the open. You know, like you have, <laughs> It's out in the open where you can see it, so it's, yeah. it becomes a hazard. But you could kill people with that. You don't have, I mean, shocking them is one thing, but <laughs> yeah. killing them is a liability. Mm. I got insurance to think about, you know, so. Uh, that's a good point. All right, scratch, scratch <laughs> there's a company. There's already a company that makes that thing that does a little arc inside of the pedal. It's a I can't remember what it's called. It came out at the Namco a few years ago. Oh, really? I hadn't seen that. Yeah, they make two products. They were making two products at the time. One looked just like a piano keyboard uh, treadle on a piano, like on a, one of those brass, yeah. bug, you know, yeah. pedals at the bottom of a grand piano. Yes, or any any piano. It, it was one of those. It's like a hold button. You stand, you step on that treadle, and it holds holds whatever you just played. It holds the note. Oh, wow. And I don't know what it uses for the circuit. It might be digital or it could be a phase lock loop. I'm not sure. And then the, the other thing that they make is a, this arc is a little little tube. There's a window with a little sort of tube-looking thing inside of there. And then there's a, like an arc that forms inside that is made out of the sound you're playing. So when you play a sound, it goes boom, 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 and creates an arc that uh, represents the sound. Um, and then it takes that arc and uses that as the fuzz. 
Man, see, I'm a little behind, apparently. Somebody's already come up with that, that one. All right. I can't remember what that, but, but that piece is called. Um, you, if you ask around, uh, a lot of people will remember it because it's pretty, it really sticks in your head. I mean, they had a huge crowd at the booth. It was packed. Oh, bad. The, um, <laughs> the, 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 the thing is, it looked very cute. I mean, it was really nicely done. It was, and it's a beautiful display, that little parking tube. So that's, the, that's a good part of it. <laughs> well, that meant- so just, the vis- just the visuals. But, you know, when you make something that's going to be like that, you really have to make sure that the sound is so distinctive that you, when you hear the sound, you fall in love with that, too. So you, you'd be drawn yeah. to it because you heard it out of the corner of your ear. You're walking past it. You hear it out of the corner of your ear, and you're like, wow, what was that? And you spin around and look at it. Then you go, wow, what is that? You know, so yeah. you need the tool. You need to have double kick, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and I, so you got to be really careful when you when you do things that are crazy that it's got to sound like something, too. <laughs> yeah. It has to be, you know, kind of a complete... I mean, I abandoned the machine completely because I just sounded... It was not what I wanted. I wanted it to sound like a, a fifth above the octave. It didn't sound anything like that. It sounded like a bunch of hashy noise. Yeah. And I was That's like, this sucks, that. you know? And I put it I put it away the very first day right after I built it, right after I first listened to it. Oh. I put it away, and I didn't listen to it at all for months. And then, uh, once again, I was having trouble selling pedals. I needed to make rent. And I was like, crap, i got to introduce a new pedal. <laughs> so I picked that thing up and looked at it and went, oh, God, this thing. <laughs> and I plugged into it because it had been such a disappointment, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like finding out that you, had, you, you gave birth to a bad kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not like me. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't bad. Yeah. I didn't smoke cigarettes. Come on, Dad. Anyway. Give me another chance. <laughs> I didn't ever go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Cops didn't ever bring me home all the time. <laughs> I didn't have to get thrown into a bathtub full of ice water to wake me up again because I was drunk up my ass. Exactly. So anyway, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't have any kids. But this is just this is my imaginary family. Yeah. <laughs> so I got. <laughs> So I, I uh, <laughs> so I, I, I revisited it and listened to it, and then I started really listening to it, and I was like, "Somebody's gonna like this. It's awful, but someone will like it." <laughs> and that was that was back in the day when I could call up stores and say, "Hey, I have a new pedal," and they they just be like, oh, "Okay, I'll take I'll take a couple of them," you know, because yeah. just they wanted to find out what, what I was gonna do next, you know. Yeah, well, it's... and then the machine arrived, and they were like, "What the <laughs> hell did we just do? Why did we buy this again?" <laughs> I, I used to have it. a policy where, I could, where, where people could re, where they could return stuff and just trade it in on other things, you know, yeah. from the store, from stores only, because I knew that they wouldn't return something that was all chipped up, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, the, the and our machine... paint, at the beginning, our paint chipped so easy because it was all testers. Oh, okay, you know? yeah. <laughs> but then we switched to we switched we switched to an automotive process, which. We illegally applied inside of an apartment building. It was pretty bad. <laughs> this is a fascinating a, story. Though. An automotive paint shop inside an apartment building. But like, <laughs> once again, I started my recording studio inside my apartment building. You know, with drums and. <laughs> oh, what the heck! Well, yeah, you know what? What the hell? That's 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 a good motto. What the hell? That that um, record, the very first recording that I made for that all-girl band called The Blue Up. Yes. They, the single that we recorded was called We Are the Garden, and it was actually released on vinyl.
Oh, uh, wow. on, a, on a label called Sustones that was run by her boyfriend, Ed Ackerson. And Ed, Ed went Ackerson. on. We, yeah, we went on to make, we did uh, about 20 albums together, Ed and I. Wow. And then he went on to start his own recording studio, uh, Flowers. Yeah. And while he was doing that, I was doing pedals. Oh, my gosh. That's so awesome. Yeah. Jeez. And she went on to do another album with Grant Hart of Husker Du. Really? Yep. And she ended up on Sony Records. And it was the president of Sony Records who signed her. And then he got canned by all of the stockholders in the, or something. I don't know. He got canned. And then they took off. They, they removed all the bands that he had signed. And her album was just about to be released on CBS oh. Sony. And it, and it got shelved. And, she, and then she was out of the business. Then oh, that's terrible. She became, she became Anna Voog of Anacam, oh. and she was the second woman to be living twenty four hours a day on camera online, and she did that for a living for several years. Oh my gosh! Okay, I know that. The, I know the that. first person to do that was Jennifer Ringley, and she and I discovered Jennifer Ringley at exactly the same time. She was looking for a way to make money because she had lost her record deal, and she wanted to work from home. And she goes, this is a perfect way for me to work from home. I'll just put up cameras everywhere and I'll walk around naked in my apartment. I was like, what? I'd have to go over to a place and help her set things up and change, you know, move cameras around and adjust angles and whatever, you know, because yeah. she didn't have anybody else to work on. I, I, I invested in the project by buying the cameras and the uploading gear and paying for the bandwidth. And Oh, wow. It was really cookie. It was, it was, uh, it was a, it was awfully strange. That's awesome. And very weird. I actually got to go see the ball drop in the year 2000 with Jennifer Ringley in uh, Times Square. Oh, wow. And it was it was uh, completely cordoned off. They were really afraid of terrorism, and they cordoned off all the streets, and everyone was stuck in the street. And there was no porta-potties. Everybody had to go to the bathroom. Oh, jeez. And I got to walk on the sidewalk because I had a pass. They had to carry around these big laminates, and I had to pass because I was part of Jennifer Ringley's team. Oh, my gosh. And I remember walking up the street. I'm walking on the sidewalk. The sidewalk is empty, and the streets are just teeming. Everybody's pressed up against everybody else because everybody wanted to be there to watch the ball drop yeah. for 2000, you know? They're all wearing their 2000 glasses, yeah. you know? I remember but that. Two circles in the middle, you know? It's perfect for glasses. Yep. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was walking past all these people screaming, can we please borrow your pass? Can we please borrow your pass? And I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. If I give you my pass, then I have to go where you were. You know, yeah. I can't go in there. <laughs> I'll never get out again. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm sorry. You know, people standing there with their legs crossed, oh. jumping up and down. And it felt so bad for everybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was Jennifer, Jennifer Ringley. It's like 20 minutes before the ball's going to drop. And Jennifer Ringley is uh, all plugged in. She's got her laptop. Her, her laptop is so old that the batteries don't work anymore. So she's got it plugged into the wall. You know? Oh, gosh. And her whole team is sitting there at this table. They're all plugged in. And they're all plugged into this one power strip with these heavy power supplies that are hanging there on the power strip sideways, you know. And I dropped, I was loading up a 16 millimeter camera because I wanted to film the ball dropping. I dropped something on the floor and I got, had to go underneath the table to pick it up and I bumped into the power strip and, oh. you know, the power supplies got unplugged. All oh, of them. No. <laughs> and all their computers died at once. Just 20 minutes before the ball's going to drop and they're trying to be live online with their cameras and everything. Oh. And just, everything just went, oh. like I was the guy who unplugged the whole they're like, what just happened? You know, and I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just go, I'll just be over here now. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to boot back up completely from scratch and they were racing, you know, in the last 20 minutes to try to get it going. <laughs> I almost wrecked the year 2000. <laughs> oh <laughs> my God. 
It was fun. That's fun, though. Man, I have kept you for a long time. So thank you so much for these stories. This has been a blast. Sure. <laughs> Where can people find the the effects pedals and 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 uh, is there social media presence? Well, and you know we have uh, Zachary Vex Effects or Zvex Effects on on Facebook. I think it's probably Zachary Vex Effects on yes. Facebook, and then um, we uh, make occasional Twitter announcements. Um, I know Tommy does a, some up, uploading, but I, we're having a sale right now. I believe I don't know if you're, when you're going to publish this, but it'll be a uh, few weeks from from today. So. Well, then that sale is over, and on Monday we're going to introduce a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on Monday we're going to introduce a, uh, a a King Kong, really nice artwork, King Kong SHO that celebrates uh, uh, the and uh, some anniversary of King Kong the movie. Oh, cool. That'll be a, a really, it's really colorful. I love, I love the way it looks. The artwork turned out really nice on this. So that'll be available Monday. It's a horizontal version of the pedal. Oh, that's awesome. Computer printed. And then um, I want to do a Kickstarter, but with this coronavirus thing, I don't know if it's a good idea, but I kind of feel like I'm compelled to do it because we're going to enter a recession and there's no doubt about that. So yeah, well, so we're going to enter a recession again, which is very depressing, but you know, I don't want to introduce it during the, during the recession because that won't help. And recessions yeah. usually last for like four years. So. Yeah, I think I have to introduce the Kickstarter, whether or not it fails, and it's for a very interesting project. It's a uh, solar-powered battery um, tube amp. It's a two-watt tube amp. It sounds really pretty. Wow! Little little practice amp. It's got four analog meters in the front of it. Um, this vintage grill cloth from the forties. Oh, it's wow. uh, um, it's it's painted black. It doesn't have Tolex. It looks like a it looks like something from the Flintstones, sort of, in a way. It's got these <laughs> copper plates in the top for the for the uh, switches and the knobs and stuff. Oh it has a solar it has a solar charge controller built in, and it, and you can buy it with a solar panel or get a solar panel of your own. And you connect a solar panel to it, and you can charge it up a hundred watt solar panel, which is like four feet tall and about two feet wide. It'll charge it up in two hours. Okay. And uh, it runs it runs for seven hours. Oh wow! On a charge, uses these. Uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries that are super safe. Oh my gosh. That's and it also amazing. comes with a plug-in charger and that takes five hours to charge. And then you can buy a high current charger for it that will charge it up in about an hour. Oh wow. And, uh, although I don't recommend using a high current charger because it'll reduce the number of charges you can get out of the battery pack from 3,000 cycles to 2,000 cycles total. Oh wow. Yeah, that's, that's and, significant. You know, a phone, if you're you know how long phone batteries last before you have to get a new battery for your phone or a new phone. Yeah. It's like a, that's about a thousand cycles. Okay. So okay. This, that's if you, if you charge this carefully, if you charge this carefully, the batteries will last three times longer than, than phone batteries do. That's three, a, I mean, their they're, they're full life, their you know, useful life will be three times longer. So you should last for, you know, if you, if you don't use it every single day, you'd be probably last for decades. Oh yeah. Yeah. Without having the batteries. Oh man! And the batteries aren't that expensive to replace anyway. So you, to follow to, to learn more about that, I guess check the website and uh, check Twitter and, and just keep following you. Well, and look on kick, look on Kickstarter for ZVX, and you'll see it suddenly appear when I put it up. Oh, that's another way to I'm do it. I'm almost ready to put it up now. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not sure that I'm very satisfied with the video that I shot to describe it. <laughs> it seems like I'm. I love I mean, your I don't video. Like this myself. Huh? I love your videos. They're hilarious. Yeah, well, I don't know if this one <laughs> is hilarious. I'm not with, I'm not with Eric talking to him. I'm, I'm just talk, talking to the audience, you know, and so it's different. It's like a slightly different vibe. I mean, I usually yeah. try to make Eric crack up, and so I, you know, <laughs> part of it is a, 
you know, trying to make a mess out of whatever we're doing, just to just like a little, you know. <laughs> well, that's I don't know if I, you know, I, I don't know if my sense of humor is getting worse. It might, might just be fading away. I don't know. I yeah. liked it. Like I, I, the, uh, the video you did for the Invento box was hilarious. That one cracked me up. <laughs> so yeah, this thing is. Uh, what's really unique about it is it, it's only two watts, and it kind of brings me back to the uh, tinnitus thing. You can't get tinnitus from this. You can sit right in front of it and play it for until the battery goes dead. You can play it for seven hours straight, and and it uh, will not hurt you. Oh and wow! You can, and it feels like it's loud enough to feel exciting, but it's not loud enough to, to cause your ears to ring. That's and awesome. um, it can't buzz or hum. It doesn't have any buzz or hum. Zip! Wow! You turn it on, and it's just going. Oh my gosh, that's amazing! You plug you plug in your guitar, and there's even if you have single coil pickups, P90s, whatever, mm-hmm. as long as you're not sitting next to a transformer, if, as long as you're sitting in a, in a spot in the room where you're not next to gear yeah. live, you know, you, you will have absolutely no hum. It's the most amazing thing wow. playing a Stratocaster through it because they're like, wow, what happened to the hum? Because every single time you pick up a Tele or a Strat, you know you're going to have to twist your body around to make that go away. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I've got a little this. Strat. Yeah. But not this. Not with this thing. You can stand at any angle you want. Wow. And then you can record... When you record, you never hear that buzz in the background. You the chords die away, and it's like wow. It's very chimey. It's got nice distortion. Um, it's, uh, it's got these military tubes that last forever. Oh man! Um, so you don't have to worry about the sound ever going away. That is awesome. Um, and it uh, recharges off the sun, so you can busk with it. If you busk with it all day, you know you play on the sidewalk in the sun all day yeah. and charge it while you're playing. Then you can unplug the solar panel um, and and take it into a subway at night and play for seven more hours and you know keep making money. That's awesome. I didn't even think of that. And it, yeah, and it, and you could take it in the woods and drive the animals crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you could take it camping and drive all the other campers crazy. Exactly. <laughs> what the hell? I came here to get away from it all. <laughs> um, and then uh, <laughs> drive away all those people with just their acoustics. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. It's, it's that, got it's got a lot of advantages, I and mean, you can play with you can play in the van while you're you know while you're on tour and you're between towns. You can break was, it out and play. I was waiting for you to say while you're driving. Well, not while you're actually at the wheel, but you know <laughs> if you're in the back seat, yeah. riding shotgun or something, you know. Yeah, exactly. Practice your uh, your material. Write some new songs while you're literally on the road. I guess I, I'm not sure if there's any more to say about that amp. Oh, oh. I, I forgot to mention, it comes with a little pedal board that fits in the open. It's an open back amp, so the opening in the back has enough room to put a tiny little pedal board that holds two pedals. Oh, cool. And it has two pedal power ports in the back of it, so that you've got two isolated 9-volt outputs, 100 milliamps each, that oh, wow. you can power pedals with. Oh, man, that's awesome. And uh, the pedal board is exactly the size for vertical, you know, vertical ZVEX effects, the vertical ones. We make, the, we make like six of them now. Coincidentally. So I've got the box of rock on Fuzz Factory on mine, but I'll, you know, when we, when I sell it, it'll come blank. You can put whatever fits on there. That and then awesome. it also has two phone charging ports in the back. So you can charge two phones at once while oh you're gosh. off the batteries. And the batteries have enough power in them to charge a, an iPhone uh, 10 times. Oh my gosh. That is amazing. See, your pig nose isn't going to do that. No. So, I mean, if you're in an emergency and your power goes out and your phone is dying, you know, 
you can grab your amp and plug into the back of your amp and just pl- charge up your phone for days. You can that, keep charging up your phone while you're waiting for somebody to come out and, you know, rescue you with a boat that, because you're, you know, <laughs> in your attic of your house while everybody else is underwater. Because that happens. It yeah. happens in America. It's happened already. It does. It does. Oh, my gosh. That is amazing. <laughs> Man, I'll tell you what. You, and meanwhile, you can be entertaining yourself while you're playing guitar, you know, when there's no power. And recording yourself. If you, There's... there's there's graphs online you can look up now that show how often the power goes out. It, and it goes out every year. It's worse. It goes out for longer and longer every single year. So really? it's a graph that just keeps going up and up and up and up. We have so many outages in this country. It's crazy. We have a deteriorating, falling apart power system. Yes. And we're just waiting, just waiting for a CME, the Carrington event, 1859. Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. And it's, it's overdue. It's like 50 years overdue. Oh, God, really? They're supposed to happen once every, it's a hundred year event, every hundred years or so. The sun is generating these CMEs all the time, but they go on all these random directions, shooting toward other planets, shooting off into space, shooting perpendicular to the plane of the planets, you know? Yeah. Every which way. But once in a while, it fires off a little fireball right at us. Yeah. And we run right into it. And we shouldn't let that stop us from playing electric guitar. No, what I'm trying to say is, (laughs) we get one of those. If we get one that was as strong as the Carrington event in 1859, which lit up all of the telegraph lines, which were the only wires we had in the sky, that was the only infrastructure we had. We had no power lines yet. Right, right. It was just just telegraph. It lit up all the telegraph lines. It started the telegraph shacks on fire. It electrocuted and burned people. It was crazy. But that was just a bunch of little wires hanging around in the sky. Now our sky is filled with wires. We have this gigantic set of grids, these heavy, heavy lines running everywhere. And then we have these transformers. At the other end of the lines from the power station are these transformers that are the uh, substation transformers that feed the cities, that bring the high voltage in and turn it into lower voltage that travels through the streets of the city, and then it gets dropped down even again for right. house voltage, household voltage, and the industrial voltages. But it's up in the millions when it starts. It's way up in these high voltages, so these transformers are really complicated. Well, the transformers are passive devices that are designed to last forever. They're buried, In a lot of cases, they're buried underground. Okay. They're, uh, they've been set up in these concrete, you know, Swimming pool tanks, basically, that protect them, and are you know fully all the water gets pumped out, and nothing ever gets in there and wrecks them. They're right. designed to sit there for a hundred years and not be disturbed. They, they they're made to last forever. Oh wow! And the companies that made these transformers are long out of business because they only could make so many, and then every city had one, and it's kind of like okay, we don't need any of these big transformers anymore. We cancel all the orders, you know. Yeah. And they shut down the machines, <laughs> yeah. and they took the machines apart, and then the company went off to make something else, you know. Oh, wow. So they can't even make the transformers. I've heard that the only place left on the planet is in Europe, where they make uh, substation transformers of the size that you find in places like L.A., New York. Oh, wow. And what happens with the CME is it causes an EMP. Right. And the That's EMP, pulse. yeah, and the EMP is just like a hydrogen bomb attack. It's right. one of those things that we fear. Um, it's it's like the uh, starfish. Um, experiment that was Project Starfish. I don't know that. In, that in, I think it was 1962. I, it was a uh, a period where we had a treaty with uh, um, Russia. There was a moratorium on uh, overground testing. So we wouldn't test any more nukes overground. We'd only test them buried underneath the ground. So right, we didn't have right. any fallout. Because yeah. both countries were getting kind of worried that we had a lot of fallout and there were a lot of people who were, who were getting cancer and the government was looking at it going, God, we can't keep killing people off. They're going to catch us. You know? yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody will figure it out. Yeah. So they said, how about we both stop testing above ground? We'll just test underground. Well, that was fine, except there were a few things that they hadn't yet tested. 
and EMP was one of them. They hadn't quite gotten a handle on what EMP could do. They didn't know how strong it was, how, the best way to make it, where to where to deliver it, how far to shoot, you know, how far to fire it off off the ground. Yeah. They didn't really know how to run the calculations to see see how it worked. They couldn't do computer, you know, 62. They didn't have the computer power, you know. Right, right, yeah. So the Russians violated the treaty. And so then America went, hey, they got the citizens together and said, hey, we get this window of opportunity. We, they violated the treaty. We can do an above-ground test until we get the treaty going again. So we can get away with it now. What did you want to find out about that EMP thing again? <laughs> and they said, well, let's go to the Marshall Islands and fire off one of these things far away from civilization and see how much we, uh, damage we can do with an electromagnetic pulse. Right, okay. And it was about 700 miles from Hawaii. I think. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but this is the way I remember it. Let's just say it's true. So (laughs) there were these parties. (laughs) There were these parties in Hawaii where people were on the rooftops waiting for the bomb to go off so they could watch it from 700 miles away because it was going to be as bright as the sun, they were told. Oh, gosh. And uh, and so they were all sitting up there drinking and whatever else you do in Hawaii. Oh, yeah. And and so I remember that little sign going, yeah, hang five, man. Yeah. Hang ten, hang up. Anybody feel they have one foot. So, <laughs> so they're all up there hanging out, and then the, the bomb went off, and then the power went out in Hawaii. Oh, <laughs> Not everywhere, but some, you know. And and people were just like, "What the hell just happened?" You know. Yeah. And meanwhile, they had all these instruments set up on Mar- on the Marshall Islands right below the bomb, and they were and it was three hundred kilometers up, I think. They set it up on a rock. I think they set it up on a rocket, and they oh, wow. and so they. They just wrecked all the instruments. I mean, everything got wrecked. They didn't measure anything. It just Jeez. everything was fried. Oh, God. They're like, well, I guess we know that it's really strong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we accomplished that much. <laughs> so let's not, let's not do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, just hope no one ever fires one of those off above us, because uh, that would be a mess. Yeah, no kidding. Jeez. I guess if you space them out at the right distance, you could cover the whole United States with like three. Wow. That would be insane. Three large, three large hydrogen bombs. You know? Oh my god! Well, that sounds and like then a... you could knock out, knock out the whole grid. Like, you know, we have to worry about that. <laughs> we have to worry about that if we're at war. We also have to worry about CME because that's much more likely because the sun has been doing this to Earth since the beginning. Yeah, and it never bothered humans. It doesn't bother animals or trees or the plant. It doesn't do anything to the woods. You know, it doesn't do anything to anything except networks of wire. Wow. When, once you have those, <laughs> and ours oh. are ours are old and and completely exposed, and there's nothing built into the system to protect it from going bad if, under CME. I mean, there's nothing you could do. Right. You know, oh. it's, it's kind of like the kind of like the starfish project starfish experiment. They couldn't measure the. It was too intense to measure. So, wow. how do you protect anything from something that's too intense to measure? You know. Yeah, you you can't. Jeez. Well, that's so anyway. <laughs> when that happens, <laughs> when that happens, if you got one of these, <laughs> you might be able to keep playing because the only the only devices that survive EMP are tubes. Oh wow! They're uh, and that's why these tubes exist. In fact, that's why I could buy them. That's why I was able to get thirty thousand of them oh. because they were made. They were made for avionics packages back in the Vietnam era originally, and these packages were suitcase-sized transmitter-receiver combinations that could be carried around by commanders on the Earth, so they could talk to the guys in the sky after nukes started going off with EMP, Uh, wrecking all the electronics. They would have tube electronics that could carry around with them that would still work. 
and they're battery powered. Oh my gosh, so, that's fascinating. So that those tubes, um, when Philips Corporation was going out of business, I think maybe early nineties, probably. I'm not sure. Can't remember exactly when it was. It was probably early nineties. My my friend Tom Herbers came to me and said, "Hey, Philips is doing their very last run of tubes. Do you want to get any?" And then they're going to shut down all the factories in the United States, and I guess they're going to sell the tube banking equipment to somebody overseas. Uh. And, uh, and I said, well, sure, I'll, I'll take a couple of 606s from my, from my amp. Yeah. <laughs> I, still had, I still had that basement I had converted. And, um, and so he ordered me a couple of tubes, and I wrapped them up in a box, and I just found them the other day um, and, oh. and stuck them in my Silvertone. I have a Silvertone, that, just the two uh, 606 version. Okay. You know, the kind that has the little pocket in the back of the cabinet so oh, you can yeah. slide the head in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the cabinet fell, up, the cabinet fell apart, but <laughs> the head is still... <laughs> the head is just amazing. It sounds fantastic. Anyway, um, those, those tubes, there was a, they, they went to the government and said, do you need any tubes before we shut down the factory? And the government ordered a whole buttload of those yeah. tubes and stuck them in a warehouse. So they're Jan 6021Ws. Avionics, you know, electronics okay. tubes. Yeah, yeah. And when Clinton was when Clinton was in, he was like, "Hey, um, we got to figure out a way to stimulate the economy here. What can we do?" And he decided one of the things he could do was open up all the military warehouses for all the surplus stuff that we had that was never going to be used for anything. Oh yeah, I remember and just that. sell it, sell it to the public. So those tubes flooded the market. They probably cost the government fifty bucks a piece. Oh jeez. I I paid a lot less than that. I was going to say you probably <laughs> paid a lot less. <laughs> I think when they were sold at when they were sold at auction before I heard about this, they were sold at auction. I think they were going for like a dime. Oh my gosh! Jeez. I paid I, I more than that, but I I, <laughs> I certainly didn't pay fifty. So they're and they're fantastic, and I've got thirty thousand of them. So I really need to do something with them. Yes. I decided this project was would be perfect. I could make my battery powered amp that you know fulfills all the things that you want. And it's uh, it's really really pretty. The audio recordings that we got that Eric recorded for it, I'm, I am just completely amazed. It's completely useful for recording. And one of the nice things about it is you can use it in your apartment at a volume level. It doesn't. No one calls the cops, you know. <laughs> and, and then when you record with it, right in front of it, you can record it with it at any volume you want. And then you play back your recording through the monitors at exactly the same volume. And you're not hurting yourself either way. You know, oh, that's both, awesome. both volumes are not hurting you. And so you have no ear fatigue and you never have to wait for your ears to recover to hear what you just recorded when you play back through the monitors. When you play through a regular, you know, amp, unless it's a really low wattage amp, when you play through a regular amp, your ears fry a little bit because of the volume. And then you have to wait to recover when you're listening back to the monitors to hear what you actually played. And it, it, it takes time for your ears to come right, back. Right, yeah. And you don't have to do that with this. That's fantastic. All the stress goes away. because There's an enormous amount of stress. I don't know if you've noticed when you play through an amp for, you know, like four hours. And you're done with it. There's a, you can, your whole body is full of stress because you tighten up, you tense up as a result of that, all yeah. that volume. Yes, yeah. You don't, you don't experience that with this. That's amazing. Oh, man. Well, that, like, People, Everybody should have a really, really low wattage amp. And another thing. The low wattage amps that we have now, people have these amps with switches on them, and it says, you know, 30 watts on one setting, and the other, the other setting says 5 watts or 1 watt or something like that. Yeah. That's not, that's not right. You can't, you can't design an, a power amp circuit 
that sweats and it's running sweaty at 30 watts and also runs sweaty at one watt. It can't sweat at one watt. It's too strong. The tubes are too tough. Okay. The tubes are, you know, big, tough tubes that can handle 30 watts total. So why would they sound special at one? You're loafing. Yeah, you know, sense. they're not, they're just, and you need them to be sweaty. You need to be, need them to be struggling because that's where the tone starts to sound compressed and cool and saggy and, you know, yeah, it yeah. gets that natural compression and little distortion. It's really fun. And these things, these tiny little tubes, they can't produce more than two watts. They, right at two watts is when they cross over from being able to go from, you know, clean sine wave into, into where the distortion appears. So okay. Oh, that's all. okay. They're, they're, at this, they're at this sweaty level at a really low volume. They're naturally sweaty. when they're So they're like a miniaturized version. It's like a tiny little mini Dober Pincherman. Dober Pincherman. Yeah, right. Doberman Pincher. Like a really, you know those toy, the little toy versions of Doberman Pinchers? Yeah, the little miniature Pinchers. Yeah. Those things are mean. Yeah, but they're little. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm going to have to isolate that. Zach, thanks for making Doberman Pincher sounds. <laughs> I mean, thank you so right. much, man. I've, I've taken up a lot well, of your evening tonight, and I want to thank you for sharing some awesome stories, man. It has been a blast. You're very welcome. Thank it was really fun. Okay. But you can't put it in the recording. You'll be the only person who's in the know about this. I I promise you, you will not be in the... can, you, can you turn off the recording? Yeah, hold on. Let me, uh, let me turn off. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.